And welcome to From Rewatch with Love, a James Bond cinematic rewatch podcast. My name is Graham Stark, and joining me is Matt Wiggins. Hello. Hello. And today we are looking at 1995's GoldenEye, which I think for many people of our age would probably be one of the first ones they saw. Yes. And if not the first, would certainly be one of the most prominent. And it would have had a large pop culture footprint regardless of that because of the related video game. Yes, which came out a few years later. Yeah, I'm just now realizing that the GoldenEye video game came out two years after the movie. Yep, there's all kinds of fascinating trivia about the GoldenEye video game relating to how it came to be what it is and its relationship to the movie tenuous as that relationship might be all the various things which we won't get into here but yeah it did definitely come out two years later but you're right like this would have been a formative experience for many people our age like i've mentioned that my first quote-unquote bond movie was view to a kill but i was 12 years old when this movie came out so this is almost certainly the first one that i would have seen in theaters because i guarantee you my parents would have taken me to see this in theaters because my mom would have definitely wanted to see this in theaters then the video game would have come out when i was 14 so <laughs> definitely for someone who is exactly my age basically right in that perfect age group timing to be the bond movie that i associate most closely with james bond the story of the video game definitely could be its own whole thing, but that's not necessarily me saying that it will be. Many people have asked, <laughs> in particular in relation to the news this week, that No Time to Die is being delayed mm -hmm. until April 2021. Many people have asked, like, oh, so what's, what's going to happen to the podcast? Currently, no intended change. We're going to keep doing them weekly until we would have... Uh, secrets, we were already going to be like two or three weeks over <laughs> running over because we did the when Matt originally mapped this out, he hadn't planned on Casino Royale 67 and Never Say Never Again being weekly episodes. They were going to be like bonus episodes, but these are so much work that we can't really do bonuses. So that sort of knocked yeah. on a thing. And then I think we started a week late. What You know, whatever. This is all fine. It just means there's going to be some downtime. And, you know, there's a chance that maybe we could talk about video games at some point, but we're not making any promises. Let Matt Griffith sleep, you vultures. <laughs> yeah, well. Watch, watch the skies. So there's a lot going on with GoldenEye. It's been several years since there's been a James Bond film. Mm -hmm. And that's because of a lot of legal and financial issues between United Artists and MGM. They had a script written, ready to go. It was going to be the third movie with Timothy Dalton and production hell is the term, right? It just, mm -hmm. they couldn't make a movie. So this was the longest gap between Bond films since Dr. No. You know, this was a huge time off as far as a James Bond movie is concerned, it, which is wild to think that a huge gap between Bond films is a relatively recent occurrence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that like six years is a huge gap. Yeah. I mean, you think about it and MCU hasn't had a gap over a year in length since 2009 and we're in one now. So like yeah. six years is maybe not as small as it, it feels like just sort of talking about it. 
Timothy Dalton was contracted for several years after License to Kill. I, I, I don't, don't know that he was paid, but there was like an agreement that it's like you're going to be in, you know, some number of Bond movies. And the only reason that he's only in two movies is because of this legal trouble. And then eventually his contract runs out. But he does come back to Cubby Broccoli and say, you know what? I, I think I would actually like to come back and do a third movie because he'd said at the time, he's like, well, I guess that's in the past whatever and it was sort of publicly known that it's like okay he's moving on from the role and then he came back to cubby and was like actually you know what i would like to do it I'd, I'd like to do one third final bond movie to really sort of see out my intent for how the character is cubby's read on the situation was that would be great but it's been so long since there's been a bond movie if you come back you have to do more than one right it was like we want to re-establish a continuity and so if you come back you're gonna do at least two if not three and dalton was like oh well then no yeah. <laughs> then I'm then I'm not interested. <laughs> and I understand where both of them are coming from in that in that regard. So then they went back to someone that they had looked at before, Pierce Brosnan, no longer caught up in the NBC issues with Remington Steel, free and clear to be the James Bond of the 90s. This would be also the last Bond film with Cubby Broccoli's direct involvement as mm. he passed away 4 months after the premiere. But at that point, there had already been a considerable amount of succession over the years. I mean, he was already less hands-on than he had been. And following his death, Barbara Broccoli and Michael Wilson, his daughter and stepson, assumed full production control of the franchise. But they'd already been working on it for many years. Right, yeah. So it's funny, too. Michael Wilson actually has a cameo in this movie. Oh, really? It was really jarring to me because I've seen so much of him on the DVD special features. <laughs> <laughs> he's completely unremarkable otherwise but i was like holy crap that's michael wilson <laughs> he also he has a really distinctive voice and i forgot to mention it he has a vocal cameo in license to kill oh at the very beginning when there's in the navy radar plane at the beginning when someone's right. mapping you can hear him be like well the bearing is three two four mark whatever <laughs> and i'm like I've, I've heard this voice like i'm michael wilson producer of the james bond series and now we're going to be looking at uh 1995's goldeneye and like he's got a really distinctive voice and i was like ah amazing so who is his cameo he's one of the council members when this is useless to anyone listening to the podcast who hasn't seen the movie he's one of the council members when mishkin is talking to oromov okay he's got real big glasses we'll get to him okay cool brand new bond brand new soundstage mm. the budget was huge they were going all out for this 60 million dollars in 1995 adjusted for inflation that's over a hundred million dollars this is a huge budget for a bond film right but it's been like six years and production budgets for movies are just inflating rapidly at this time right and so even in its day 60 million dollars was not astronomical it was like yeah all right you can make a movie for 60 million dollars in 1995 sure and so i'm just gonna front load all of the sad news they relied a lot on miniatures in this movie there are more miniatures in this movie than i ever realized until oh yeah researching for this particular episode like there was there's a bunch and i was like yeah obviously that's a miniature that's a miniature but i was watching the miniatures featurette and i was like wait that's a miniature wait hang on <laughs> that's a miniature wait and it's really good and i say i front loading all the sad news because longtime miniature director derek meddings passed away I think between production and the movie's release the movie is dedicated to his memory uh. he's been working on them 
since, well, I mean, the 70s at least. You know, most famously, I think Moonraker, because of course he did all the work with the Anderson Productions, Thunderbirds and stuff back in the day. Right. But yeah. But amazing work on this movie as well. Because they wanted to go more for miniatures for a couple of different reasons. One, I mean, look, I think it looks better done right. I think it looks better than CGI done wrong, which is what they wanted to avoid. They're like, it's 1995. CGI is super expensive and can look bad if it's not done right. For every Jurassic Park in 93 that did use CGI and used it very effectively, by the way, in combination with things like miniature and puppetry. Right. There's dozens and dozens and dozens of movies from the mid-90s that look like ass. And this movie does not look like ass. No, this movie looks really good. This movie holds up. And I think that's to the great credit of Derek Mettings and their decision to go with miniatures, which I recall... The next several movies definitely use CG a lot more. Mm -hmm. I have an image of a surfing sequence in my head that <laughs> I'm really not looking forward to, but I guess we'll talk about that in a movie. <laughs> Luckily, this movie was a box office success, $352 million in its day, $600 million today and more in ancillary licensing as well. I mean, if you look, if you take the video game into account, which I don't have the numbers to do, GoldenEye was absolutely a massive success and was received very, very well. Written by a totally new writing team, because I mentioned Michael Wilson as the producer. We've talked about Michael Wilson a lot because he and Richard Maybaum, and then later just Michael Wilson, due to the writer's strike, wrote several Bond films that we've already talked about. Right. But this is a totally new team. Screenplay by Jeffrey Kane and Bruce Firestein, who don't have a lot of other credits. I mean, certainly not prior to this. And in fact, most of Bruce Firestein's credits since writing Goldeneye are the 007 video games. <laughs> like he's done writing on Goldeneye, James Bond, Everything or Nothing, the From Russia with Love video game, Bloodstone and 007 Legends. Huh strange eclectic set of james bond video games to be associated with writing as well it's weird yeah he would also do writing on the next two bond films tomorrow never dies and the world is not enough director martin campbell who prior to this had mostly done television work but had made quite a name for himself in doing television work right and doesn't have a huge number of movie credits just sort of in general among them are both of the Antonio Banderas Zorro movies, mm -hmm. The Mask of Zorro and The Legend of Zorro. The 2011 Green Lantern, which is <laughs> kind of a bummer. Yeah, maybe not to his credit on that one. Yeah, there's a movie from 2010 with Mel Gibson called Edge of Darkness. Which I've heard of, but never seen. Yeah, he directed the Edge of Darkness miniseries in 1985. Oh. So that's, I imagine that's why... That relationship there but also he directed goldeneye and 2006's casino royale right which have to be two of the better received critically and audience wise bond films yeah absolutely <laughs> yeah and it's just sort of kind of wild it's like wait the same guy directed those he's there's the only two bond movies he's done and they're both pretty great yeah I, I know that at the end of the last episode, you and I were maybe a teeny bit worried. We're just like, gosh, <laughs> I hope Goldeneye holds up. Yeah. Because I have such fond memories of it. And I hope that it is still actually good when we're being like, all right, cracks knuckles, going to record a podcast about this. <laughs> hope this is good. And this movie is really good. This movie is really good. 
it's interesting because like as my tastes have matured over the years i have come around much more strongly on although my looking at my rankings my rankings don't necessarily indicate this but i've come around much more strongly on classic bond than i mm. had when i was younger right uh, you know i still think from russia with love is one of the best bond movies ever made i still think on her majesty's secret service is a like an absolutely rockin film I think this would have been like unequivocally my favorite Bond movie around the time that it came out and for the probably the 10 years thereafter. I don't know that it is anymore, but it's still really darn good. Like it's it is a really real like this movie rules unironically. It rules out loud, but it struck me while watching it how much this movie still still feels like the living daylights <laughs> which i also really liked but you could swap timothy dalton into this movie and it would be exactly the same movie. yeah that's true i think part of that is i was thinking before we started recording that when we've had a new bond we've talked about sort of how they play bond and i am having a difficult time articulating pierce brosnan's take on james bond other than well he he's james bond like like <laughs> sean connery was very violent, but essentially charming. Didn't let anything get to him, but was brutal when he needed to be. Roger Moore was much more affable and empathetic. Dalton was no nonsense and serious, even though if you've listened to the last two episodes, he still is very funny. And we joke about, it's like, wait, isn't this one guy supposed to be the not funny Bond? Yeah. But it's like, who is this James Bond? Yeah. I don't know. I was I was asking myself that same question. It part of it is he just like Pierce Brosnan looks a lot like Timothy Dalton. So the break in terms of like visual continuity isn't that strong, but he's not a lot less edgy in his portrait. Like he's a little softer, I guess, but not by much. And the level of action in this movie is ratcheted up yet another degree. So the movie still feels like it's pushing the edge a little bit, which takes the the sort of like classic Bond flavor out a little bit. Maybe it's just the only thing that I have to latch onto here is Timothy Dalton in The Living Daylights as the sort of like mooring post for this film to give me a character to latch onto. Because you're right, there's not actually a ton of character development for Bond in this movie. We, we don't, he does not really have any kind of an arc in this movie he's just there doing his thing which is i mean true of a lot of them i don't i don't feel like his character is really super well drawn i mean i don't i actually don't know if i 100 percent agree with that but we'll get to that part of the story later i suppose sure i just want to make it clear that when i say that i'm i have trouble articulating what this james bond's character is other than james bond i don't actually mean that as a criticism pierce brosnan slides so smoothly into this role that i'm not like oh okay he's playing james bond but he's doing this with it right right it's so obvious when i watch it it's like of course he's james bond he's not the funny one or the this or the that he's just he's being james bond and i i, I it lands for me really well also i think this has a lot more classic bond notes in it than the dalton ones though you're talking more about living daylights than license to kill 
yeah, I'm using Living Daylight specifically because License to, like, I count License to Kill as an exception. It is a very different movie that I wouldn't draw against. Mm -hmm. Whereas The Living Daylights was like Timothy Dalton in a slightly more action-heavy, sweeping Bond espionage movie. I don't necessarily mean it as a criticism either that I, like, I don't think the character is super well drawn here because I agree with you completely. It Brosnan slides into this role and inhabits it very well. But despite it being six years and the, the reestablishment and re reinvention of Bond, so to speak, it doesn't actually feel like they've done much with the character himself. The character still feels very familiar and very the same. There's not a big continuity break there, which, you know, they could have done. They could have taken another hard turn and they didn't. And I think that's probably has a lot to do with the fact that it had been so long that they didn't want to be like, look, James Bond is back and it's weird. I think they probably wanted to lean more into, hey, remember that thing? Yes. Yeah. You know, especially after six years, which doesn't even seem like that long, but especially after six years and being in the 90s, I imagine that this at the time felt like much more of a throwback, mm. especially after License to Kill, which, as we talked about, is the Bond film that for us felt the least like a Bond film. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that that makes sense. It, it's the Bond updated for a new era, but still like recognizably a Bond movie. And from my perspective, this feels like a 90s action movie, but with the trappings and the stylistic quirks of a Bond film and like of a, a relatively classic Bond film, but it still feels anchored in its era. And I think you're right. I think they, they are trying to sort of like throw back to what is familiar while also like bringing it bringing people along with it into what it's going to be mm. if that makes any sense at all mm -hmm. yeah i think so i think that also we should just start talking about it because there's so much to talk about yes let's go so first thing the gun barrel sequence i mentioned that they were trying to avoid cgi but not here the gun barrel is cgi and so the reflections in it move as the gun tracks bond across the screen and i think it's a really cool detail to update that visual for 1995 mm -hmm. i think it looks really sweet the circle focuses down on a plane which is actually foreshadowing which i love yeah flying over a massive it just absolutely enormous dam captioned as the archangel chemical weapons facility in the USSR. In fact, it's a dam in Switzerland, but that doesn't matter. A man dressed all in black, whom we can only assume is Bond, they do the thing where you don't see his face right away. It's good. Runs onto the dam, attaches ropes and, you know, what are actually bungee cables to the railing at the top and throws himself off the dam in a real stunt that actually happened. <laughs> There's this amazing shot of the bungee performer falling hitting the end of the rope, snapping, still falling from the tension of the rope, pulling out a gun and aiming it down just as he disappears behind some rocks. Mm -hmm. The timing is brilliant. He said he was very <laughs> scared that he would get it wrong and Cubby would be mad at him. <laughs> Bond fires a piton from the gun because it's like a winch gun that fires pitons, pulls himself down to the roof of this building at the bottom of the dam. The gun also has a laser which he uses to open a trap door, 
which I realized only on this viewing is also foreshadowing, which I was very impressed by. And he lowers himself into the bathrooms. Uh, what's this level called? Facility? I just, I, Facility. I can't, I can't not see the video game every time I'm looking at I this. know. And one of the things I love about the video game is that there are two whole levels based solely on the, the pre-title sequence. Yeah. Because the whole damn level is a level in GoldenEye, and then the facility is a level in GoldenEye. They really got their money's worth out of the plot they did so he knocks out a guy sitting on the toilet and the first time we see him he's actually upside down so like his full sort of face reveal isn't until a moment later where he lets himself out of the stall i kind of like the, the first time we really see pierce brosnan as james bond he's letting himself out of a bathroom stall <laughs> He sneaks around this facility, gets into a supply closet where he is spotted and held up at gunpoint by another double O. This is 006, Alec Trevelyan, as played by Sean Bean. Sean Bean didn't have a huge number of film roles prior to this movie either. A lot of hmm, British TV, you know, not no film roles. Like he's he'd been on a lot of stuff and had a lot of parts here and there, but he was in Patriot Games in 1992, oh, yeah. one of the Harrison Ford, Jack Ryan movies. Yeah. And then after this, because of course this was 1995, after this was in Ronin. And then, of course, in 2001 in The Fellowship of the Ring. Right. I care that he was in Equilibrium. I don't know if anybody else cares about Equilibrium. If you don't care that he was in Equilibrium, you should. Equilibrium's great. <laughs> Equilibrium's so ridiculous. Anyway, he's been in a whole bunch of stuff. He's also been in a big thing that he's known for in the UK is it's technically a TV series, even though it's like they're TV movies and they only make one every year or so. But mm -hmm. he plays lieutenant or colonel. It, he gets promoted. He plays Richard Sharp. The series, I guess, is just called Sharp, but it's like Sharp's Rifles, Sharp's Company sharps mission he, it's a period military drama that he's been in for many many years and then of course right 2011 game of thrones maybe you've heard of it yeah you've seen sean bean around it struck me actually how young he looks in this movie he really does yeah. just because i'm so used <laughs> to seeing him in other stuff also because you know spoilers later in the movie he has some mild facial disfigurement and so mm -hmm. in these scenes it's this young fresh-faced sean bean and i'm like oh wow look at that guy <laughs> So they are on a mission, you know, for queen and country. Trevelyan makes a point of saying, ah, for England, James? For England, Alec. That becomes relevant later, obviously. And they sneak around this facility, which they are trying to sabotage because it's a chemical weapons plant. And they do a lot of very quippy banter. I like that they're both being, it's like, this is just what double O's are like, you know, like. Right, yeah. <laughs> some, some people, some people get into the room and he's like, oh, closing time, James. And James says, buy me a pint, Alec. You know, they're like doing useless <laughs> back and forth quipping. Trevelyan is covering them from attack while Bond is running around planting bombs with six minute timers. And eventually a bunch of Russians led by a man who we will much later find out is General Arkady Oromov, played by actor Godfried John, who has been in a, a good Russian name. He's been in a whole bunch of stuff that I can't pronounce, you know, and a couple things that I'm aware of, like Asterix and Obelix. Oh, yeah. All right. But he's been in a <laughs> bunch of not English movies. 
what nation of movies has he been in? I'm assuming from Asterisk and Obelisk, it's... Well, that, I mean, Asterisk and Obelisk would be French, but he's not French, nor is he Russian. He is German. So presumably a lot of German films. Presumably, yes. Uh, he also won a Bavarian Film Award for Best Supporting Actor for oh. Asterix and Obelix Take on Caesar. Good for him. Yeah. After the Russians break into the room, Trevelyan stops responding to Bond's quips, and Bond leans around the corner and sees that Trevelyan is being held at gunpoint by General Orimov, who demands that Bond stop what he's doing and surrender. Bond ducks back inside the protected area that he is, which is all these chemical tanks. And I don't know why they have just a button for this, but presses one button on the remote detonator, <laughs> changes the time from six minutes to three minutes, and the timer starts counting down. He throws down his gun and makes as if he's about to surrender when the general shoots Trevelyan in the head, and they start to open fire on Bond. Ormov yells at them, like, stop, don't shoot. You'll blow us all to hell. What are you doing? Mm. He does not have smart men working for him the general <laughs> so bond hides behind a wheelie cart of barrels of presumably some sort of chemical toxin and slowly just like <laughs> slides across the floor while everyone stares at him because they're afraid to fire one guy gets so agitated that he does unleash a couple rounds and Oromov turns around and shoots him there's a great shot in this scene like th this is this is an awesome scene of him like creeping across the room. There's just a great shot of like all the soldiers with their guns trained on this cart, just tracking the cart across the room. Yeah. Which is hilarious in its absurdity. It's really good. Completely believable, but it's just really funny. <laughs> yeah. Everything's shot really well too. Cinematographer Phil Mayhew did a terrific job with a bunch of this stuff. He also worked with Martin Campbell on the Zorro movies and Casino Royale and prior to this had filmed i mean a bunch of stuff but also highlander to the quickening so maybe i just <laughs> won't talk about it you know what he was also the cinematographer on the spongebob movie sponge out of water so good for him <laughs> bond eventually gets to the other side of the room where there is a conveyor belt he turns on the conveyor belt to the surprise of oromov leaps onto the belt and as it is pulling him out of the room shoots at this amazing storage structure up on the wall that is holding back barrels and barrels and barrels of presumably some sort of chemical agent, which was well established in a shot when they get into the room. They look at one side of the room and they see the storage thing, and then they look at the other side of the room and they see the tanks that they're going to blow up. Everything's very well right. laid out visually. Speaking of visuals, the great visual of all these barrels then flying off the wall onto all of these Russians. <laughs> as Bond tumbles out of the facility onto the runway where that plane that we saw earlier is now taxiing for a takeoff on this very short mountain runway. Bond fires until his gun is out and then just takes off running after this plane. And I love that there's this great fake out because he does catch it. He gets onto the plane and there's only one guy in it and he starts attacking the guy on the plane. And you're like, oh, okay, that's how he's going to get away. But then the guy is pretty successful at fighting him and they fly off the plane, taking the door off the plane with it. He's being pursued by a couple men on motorbikes who are able to catch up with it. The motorbike hits the body of the pilot and goes flying. So Bond grabs the motorbike and then takes off after this empty plane that is still taxiing down the runway. At which point Oromov is like, wait, 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 we can all stop chasing him. Let's see what's about to happen because it's not going to go well for this dude. 
the plane gets to the end of the runway, which again is on the top of a mountain and just pitches off the cliff. So Bond takes the motorcycle and just flies off the cliff, jumps off the motorcycle, free falls down to the plane until he gets level with it, pulls himself inside the plane as the camera POV shot barrels towards the ground, desperately pulling up on the stick. And then there's this amazing shot of the plane disappearing behind a mountain, the sound of the plane almost silent until it flies back up in front of the camera and takes off and Bond is successful in escaping as the three-minute timer runs down and the facility blows up and Bond flies away over top of the now exploding and burning facility. It's 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 an absolute banger of a pre-title sequence. It's so good. Everything about it is so well done and it sets up so much stuff for the movie as well. Yeah, it's so good. And a little thing that I appreciate is that the cut to the opening title sequence is this wide shot of the facility blowing up with subsequent explosions and then it dissolves to a gun barrel centered on the explosion as the explosion of munitions in the barrel are in the same spot. It's a really cool, it's not good. Even if you're watching the video version on YouTube, it's never gonna, you're never gonna be able to really sort of get the full experience, but it's a very good transition. And it's a really good transition into a really good opening title. Holy moly. The song is amazing. The visuals are, are awesome. Like huge huge step up i mean basically now we're at the point where they're like wait we can do something really cool and awesome with every one of these they come out of the gate with a bang the opening title sequence is rad still very familiar but updated because it's still you know the like nude ladies posing and dancing over various objects themed around the film with some motif in the visual depiction to unify all the imagery that they're using the level of technology that they're bringing to this and the level of like inventiveness and artistry that they're bringing to this is a dramatic shift from where we left off on License to Kill. Yeah, it's really good. And what I love also is that it starts with a much more traditional nude ladies in silhouette so that there's like, oh, right, James Bond. But then it moves into all this stuff with set pieces and statues and everything. And mm -hmm. that pre-title is, we will find out, nine years ago in the middle of the Cold War. And after the opening titles is present day of 1995. And the opening titles is visually telling the story of the fall of the Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. So it's a literal transitionary piece between the pre-title and after the fall with all these statues tumbling down as the opening titles move on. And title designer Daniel Kleinman, because as I mentioned, Maurice Binder passed away in 1991, is the person taking over for this and visually just works really well. It immediately reads as Bond and it does so much storytelling in it as well. And then you have the song, the song Goldeneye, performed by Tina Turner, written by Bono and the Edge of U2. Despite there being no deedly guitars in it the whole way through. <laughs> yeah, we're back in Belter territory and Tina Turner absolutely kills it. We sure are. I mean, this song is really good. It has nothing whatsoever to do with the content of the film. <laughs> it really, really doesn't. 
<laughs> it's golden eye, but they're thinking about a person with a golden eye as like someone that the singer had some sort of relationship with from her youth. <laughs> Which is no bearing whatsoever on the the content of the film. There, there's nothing there at all. But it, it like this is where they are really, really, really trying to harken back to to Goldfinger, right? This song is trying to remind you that like we know how a Bond movie is supposed to start. <laughs> <laughs> yeah and they are really like drawing some parallels there i think and i i believe it to be strongly intentional the name goldeneye comes from ian fleming's house like it wasn't from one of the james bond novels this is a totally untethered storyline and name and he named his house goldeneye after a special intelligence code name that he used when he was in British special intelligence for a plan that they had formulated for if the Nazis ever invaded Spain. I don't know why Goldeneye was a name for that. I don't know why he decided that that would be the name of his house. He just liked it. It's a good code name for what it is in this movie. So sure. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's not really. <laughs> well, I, only literally in a big yellow eye shaped rock. <laughs> Well, only because it's not Russian, I suppose. Like, you would think it would be Russian. <laughs> I mean, if you're going to codename something, you would want it to not resemble the object, right? Yeah. The transition out of the opening titles is we go back down the gun barrel and transition to a POV shot of flying along the road. It's just everything is so smooth. Mm -hmm. It's very well constructed. Yep. So here we are now. Nine years later, Bond is driving an Aston Martin because it's Bond, you see, but that'll change <laughs> later in the foothills around Monaco. This was not actually shot there. I don't recall where it was shot. And we don't find out right away. But what's happening here is that James is being evaluated, which I also kind of like is a bit of a nod that it's like it has been a few years. He's being evaluated by this is somebody named Caroline played by Serena Gordon, who is completely incapable of resisting James Bond's many charms. <laughs> He's driving way too fast, and then a red car pulls up behind him. To the goofiest music cue in the universe. Oh, man. Why did you have to remind me? I was like... I the pre-title happened in the opening titles, and I was like, oh my god, this movie is great. Thank goodness, this movie can do no wrong. And then the music in this scene... <laughs> All the music in this scene is so bad. It's just really like... <laughs> and like, even the, the hit at the beginning of the gun barrel sequence is like, oh, this is different. And again, it reminds me so much of the video game. Yeah. And the music themes, the instruments that get used for anything involving Russia in this movie are really cool. And I like a lot. And this scene is just like out to lunch as far as music is concerned. Yeah. They open it with a great quip back and forth. Feels very Bond. Caroline is looking very uncomfortable in the passenger seat and turns to Bond and says, James, I enjoy a spirited ride as much as the next girl, but would you please slow down? And then the red car pulls up and, and he looks over and she says, who's that? And he says, the next girl. It's a very good line. We don't find out who this woman is right away. But she's driving a red Ferrari and she and Bond have a race. It's very back and forth. There's a lot of close calls. There's some visual gags with a whole bunch of cyclists climbing up. Bond lets the woman pass and then the cyclists all stop and they're fine. But then one of them trips and they all go over like dominoes. Very funny cyclist humor, I'm sure, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> if they didn't want to slip off the pedals, they should have been wearing clipless shoes. That's my hot take. 
I knew you'd have an opinion. I wasn't expecting that one. That's, that's good. <laughs> Eventually, Caroline demands that James stop. So he pulls a handbrake turn and they come screeching to a halt to which he quips, as you see, I have no problem with female authority, while he reveals a chilled bottle of Bollinger and glasses in the middle of the center console. <laughs> and Caroline says he's incorrigible and they make out. The close-ups of Brosnan's hands in this scene belong to the hands of his adopted son because he had injured his hand. Really? And they needed a hand double and Christopher Brosnan was like a third assistant or something on the second unit. And so they were like, all right, we'll use your hand. You're his son. Like not by blood, but yeah, all right. Like my hand isn't going to look like his hand, but sure. So is so like for the shifting and the, the handbrake and the like revealing the, the wine and, yeah. and that sort of thing. All of that. That's amazing. Yeah. That's great. Later that night at the casino, Bond arrives and notices that the red Ferrari is there. So lets himself in. And we have a game of Baccarat. Or what's the other one? Because apparently, you remember when you did all that research to look up Baccarat, but it turns out they were playing a different game that's like Baccarat, but it's like a sub game. It's like a variant. Yeah. It's, it's Chemin de Fer. Yeah. Is that right? I believe so. Yes. Which I will now have my pronunciation corrected of i'm sure uh oh it was right all right shimin to fur which i have no pronunciation guide for but that is what it is apparently the oldest documented version of Backrat. oh well they're playing that one i think they get to choose to draw cards so i guess so that seemed to be the the predominant differentiating feature as was described to me in youtube comments yeah the woman seems to be controlling the shoe so there's no dealer so i, th I think that it is that variant anyway Bond sits down, immediately loses the hand and all of his money, asks for one more hand, asks for a bigger line of credit, which he has approved, and absolutely soaks her on the second hand. <laughs> because what an asshole. I love it. <laughs> she excuses herself from the table. He approaches her and says, so I see that we share three passions. And she says, I count two. Fast Cars and Baccarat. Let's hope the third is where your real talent lies. So we finally get to find out who this woman is. This is Xenia Onatop. Onatop? Onatop. <laughs> this, the, it's so weird that it's like, well, we got to have the woman with the funny name because it's James Bond. But literally everyone in the movie goofs on it. <laughs> I mean, everyone that talks about it, right? Like Bond to her face is like, really? Like, and then... <laughs> Money Penny makes a joke about it later. And then when he's talking to M even further on, he's like embarrassed to say that's her name. <laughs> he's like, he's talking to M later on. He's like, and the woman uh, on a top, like he doesn't want to tell mummy the naughty word. <laughs> she is played by Famke Janssen, who, I mean, obviously known for this role. And Jean Grey in the X-Men movies. Yes, also Jean Grey in the X-Men movies and a bunch of TV parts such as Hemlock Grove and The Blacklist and How to Get Away with Murder. Huh. But yeah, definitely best known probably for this or the X-Men trilogy. Not, not just trilogy, because she was also in Days of Future Past. Yes. Yeah, that's right. And the Wolverine. She's been in a bunch of... She's Jean Grey in the X-Men movies until such time as that gets retconned. But what she's truly, truly known for is her role in 1998 horror movie Deep Rising. Oh my god. I forgot about Deep Rising. <laughs> 
<laughs> Good old Deep Rising. I've only ever seen it on TV. I don't think I ever saw Deep Rising. <laughs> I'm being very glib. It is it is a very bad horror movie that I have only ever seen on TV. But she's in it. My brand in this podcast now is making reference to late 80s, early 90s aquatic themed horror movies, apparently. <laughs> I mean, you got to have a hobby. <laughs> One of her first on-screen roles actually was in an episode of Star Trek The Next Generation. As whom? As Kamala, the perfect mate in the episode, The Perfect Mate. <laughs> it's a very early next-gen episode where they're transporting basically a genetically engineered pod waifu. There's a problem on the plane. The egg gets tipped over and she emerges and imprints upon the first man she sees, which is supposed to be her future husband, but ends up being Picard. Right. It, it's, it's very season one next-gen Except that it's season five, episode 21. Season five? <laughs> and like near the end of season five. Perfect Mate was season five? Season five, episode 21. I'm looking at the episode list right now. Also, the makeup they designed for her was later used for the trill. This was season five. <laughs> Almost season six. What the hell? This is not a great episode. <laughs> well, they can't all be winners. Yeah, true. <laughs> Anyway, yep. back in Goldeneye, Bond and Onatop are flirting very heavily. He orders his martini, shaken not stirred, of course. She orders her martini straight up with a twist while making a suggestive gesture with her cigar. And it seems like it's really going Bond's way if he's interested in sex, but he's not because he says, by the way, your car. And she says that it belongs to a friend of hers. And he says, well, you should tell your friend that the registration plates start with this number for this year even the counterfeit ones and you can see her just like drop she's like i am no longer interested in this conversation and she asks him what rank do you hold in the motor vehicle enforcement division and he says commander which is just kind of funny and then a man appears beside her she says well this one's an admiral so excuse me the man who's obviously her date he says that he likes a woman who knows when to pull rank and they leave did we ever find out what their third shared interest was i think it was supposed to be sex i think that was where he was going or maybe it's the cigars and she went that way before he could get there uh, i don't know okay i like i remember that conversation i just could not remember what the conclusion of it was but hey maybe they didn't conclude that in any case we can carry on bond snaps some pictures of her and the man and the small boat that they're getting into the yacht that they're taking the small boat back to and transmits those to MI6. Across the harbor in Monaco, he notices that there is a stealth naval battleship docked there with a helicopter on its helipad. He just sort of notices. He's like, that seems like something I should make a mental point to remember. He gets in the Aston Martin and information comes through from MI6 and Moneypenny gets on the radio and gives him information on these pictures that he's literally just taken. Talks about Xenia Onatop. She has ties to the Yanis criminal organization and that the yacht is leased to a known Yanis front. Moneypenny tells him that M has advised him to observe but not get involved. Signs off by saying that she's sure that he will keep on a top of things. I like that they're goofing on her name. Yeah. 
<laughs> it it lends a sense of winking at the camera to it that mm-hmm. I appreciate from this film because it is very silly. It is. Xenia also used to be a fighter pilot, which I guess will be pretty relevant almost immediately. <laughs> As we cut to her and this admiral engaged in the throes of something, they both seem to be enjoying themselves a lot up until the. Po- I don't want to describe it in great detail because there's a lot of, a lot of scratching and. If you've ever seen two Klingons have sex, it's definitely sort of that kind of vibe. He's not keeping up with it, but he seems to be enjoying himself. But he's not necessarily keeping up with her up until. She wraps her legs around his midsection and literally squeezes the life out of him. (laughs) (laughs) To his protestations of, Xenia, I can't breathe. The character is Admiral Chuck Farrell. To which Navy does he belong? (laughs) He's Canadian. (laughs) Played by actor Billy Mitchell, who was also in Never Say Never Again. Okay. As Captain Peterson. Okay. So I guess he was a submarine commander in that one and now he's an admiral and now he's dead it's a shame they didn't keep the character name the same (laughs) although i suppose acknowledging the uh the non-eon production would be uh verboten we know that his name is admiral chuck farrell from the canadian navy because literally as he's being killed a hand reaches into the foreground of shot and pulls his id card out of his coat i want to know so i know why because it's a filmmaking shortcut that prevents them from having to make do a whole other scene but he's literally being suffocated to death they don't need to be stealthy about lifting his id and yet they are stealthy about lifting his id for reasons unexplained true you know what's not particularly subtle though is the scene transition of xenia really 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 happy that she's killing this dude she gets off on murder by the way and definitely looks like she's approaching a pivotal moment in her evening shall we say and then the scene just cuts to this churning water from the back end of a boat (laughs) i had not put that together until just now but you're right that is very on the nose isn't it it really is there's a very popular song about this going around right now if you're wondering what we're talking about (laughs) so it's the next morning and the boat is the small landing craft leaving this big yacht and as soon as it's gone bond hops aboard this yacht so he can sort of poke around someone tries to attack him and he very quickly knocks this dude out and as he's looking around we see that admiral chuck farrell is being admitted on board this stealth naval ship that's in the harbor with xenia by his side but we just saw this dude get killed what's going on also i believe it's implied later that this is meant to be Oromov in disguise so i thought that too i i think the only way this makes any sense at all is if they stop and drop off the the body double and pick up Oromov along the way okay good. yes yes thank you because like <laughs> these, this guy Oromov is way taller than this dude yeah we will see two people leave this scene in a helicopter one of them being Xenia and then the next time we see Xenia or the helicopter they are entering the scene in the helicopter except that it's Xenia and Oromov yeah we don't know I'm gonna say we don't know who this guy is and I like your headcanon that they dropped him off somewhere maybe out of the helicopter who knows yeah it happens off screen so they've disguised someone as Admiral Farrell so that this person and Xenia can get onto the boat where there's this fancy helicopter Bond realizes that something is amiss when he finds the body of Admiral Farrell somehow in rigor with an enormous grin on his face. Like he's been killed by the Joker. Yeah. So Bond 
leaps onto the other landing craft and takes off as quickly as he can towards the naval ship with the helicopter on it. Now, the helicopter in the movie is the Eurocopter Tiger, mm-hmm. and in real life is the Eurocopter Tiger, the EC665 Tigre, because it's French. And this was indeed a prototype helicopter. In fact, it wouldn't go into full production until 2002. Oh, wow. Yeah. I figured it was a real helicopter because I did notice in the end credits of this movie, one of the special thanks is to Eurocopter for the use of the Tiger helicopter. So that makes sense. Yeah. Apparently they'd never landed it on a boat yet. Huh. Yeah. (laughs) This was their opportunity to try. Yeah. Above deck on the ship, they talk about how they're going to be demonstrating this new amazing helicopter and their two pilots will be climbing on board momentarily. Then below decks, we see those two pilots walking towards the helicopter and they're distracted by Xenia, who makes to appear as if she's about to undress for them and says that it's a surprise from your friends at the barracks and then she kills them both. The pilot with the speaking line is the stunt performer who did the bungee jump in the pre-title. Ah. He's got kind of the the Pierce Brosnan hair. Yeah. Yeah. That's nice. They gave him a speaking line. Yeah. Xenia and this other guy disguise themselves as the pilots, which goes unnoticed because they're wearing big helmets and they're on a deck below everybody who's watching. Basically, they're they're talking about this amazing helicopter. And one of the keys about this helicopter is that it is undetectable by radar, which is a big problem when it's about to be stolen. Uh-huh. Bond is desperate to get there before this happens, but he's only just running up the gangplank as the helicopter's taking off. And of course, gets restrained by the naval officers because he's this man running up a gangplank onto a naval ship. Yeah. And then the helicopter just sort of takes off and everyone's like oh neat and then moves over the harbor and they're like yay look at it go and then it just keeps going and they're like what what (laughs) and it's gone cuts back to bond looking very sour yeah and then it cuts to a bunch of doggies they're such good boys and this is also foreshadowing sorry there's so many good scene setting shots that are also relevant foreshadowing in this movie yep I, I was just thinking, like, even like, there's so much efficient storytelling in this movie. Mm-hmm. Even the, just the cuts in the helicopter stealing scene. It's like Xenia shoots the two soldiers and then, like, smash cut to her already in their uniform, putting on a helmet to them walking onto the deck. Like, it, it's just, like, really efficient. <laughs> there's no wasted time in anything that happens here. It's great. Yeah. Anyhow, we we cut to this sled team in Severnaya, as Graham mentions, just sort of like establishing it as it pulls up to this radar dish and this big base. What we have here is the Severnaya Satellite Weapons Facility, I believe it is. And we transition inside to where a bunch of technicians are gathered around computers. We meet two of our main characters here. We meet Natalia, who certainly you know from the James Bond video game, and Boris, who you probably tried to play frequently when playing multiplayer in the GoldenEye video game because he was the second smallest character behind Oddjob and Oddjob was always banned. Was Boris really smaller? He was the second smallest. I didn't know that. Oddjob was the shortest one and you could shoot over his head, but Boris was also short in the game. So I I know I always tried to go for Boris. I always tried to play as Siberian Special Forces because they blended in really well. Ah, yes. Yeah, because Boris was in the Hawaiian shirt. Yeah. But if you kneeled down, by default, you would shoot over Boris's head. Huh. Natalia is played by... By Isabella Skorupko, who sadly doesn't have a huge number of movie credits apart from GoldenEye, but was in The Exorcist, The Beginning, the 2004 Exorcist, mm-hmm. and recently was in a TV series that it was is definitely not in English. <laughs> <laughs> I can't pronounce it. 
Boris is played by Alan Cumming, who is great and has been in a lot of other stuff as well. Also in the X-Men series. Yes. He plays Nightcrawler. Yeah. So you might maybe won't recognize Alan Cumming from the X-Men movies. I often don't recognize Alan Cumming. He's very good at being like, where where have I seen that guy? And then you realize it's Alan Cumming and you're Mm -hmm. like, oh, it totally is. Of course. Okay. Yeah. 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 Wasn't Alan Cumming also in terrible sequels to, I want to say he was in like Inspector Gadget and The Mask. He was definitely in The Son of the Mask. 100% in The Son of the Mask. That's disappointing for him. The Smurfs too, but also possibly, oh, he was also in The Smurfs because he was the voice of, of Gutsy. Oh, right. He has a larger role in Josie and the Pussycats. Isn't he like their manager? If I have ever seen Josie and the Pussycats, <laughs> it was a long time ago. If I have ever seen Josie and the Pussycats, you can't prove it. <laughs> I, I am given to understand it's really, really good. I just don't know if I've seen it. Right. He plays Loki in Son of the Mask. Ah. Right. So not the Son of the Mask, but he plays Loki himself. Right. Getting back to the movie at hand, we we meet Natalia Simonova and Boris Grishenko, who are both systems engineers working on this weapons system. Boris seems to have something of a sexual harassment problem. No kidding. <laughs> it is used to establish the, the kind of character he is and the kind of hijinks he gets up to, because he sends Natalia an image of Natalia, like a cartoon image of Natalia in a bathing suit, looking, you know, posed in a lewd way, and uses it to lock out her computer, and she has to guess the password in order to resume her work so we learn that that he is something of a a like computer hacker anyhow it's a riddle he he gives her a hint they are right in front of you and they open large doors she realizes that he means knockers so she types it in regains control of her computer all the while he is like trying to hack the fbi they're, they're clearly very bored. They don't have a lot to do. This is a remote weapons facility in Siberia, and they are just monitoring it to make sure that everything's fine. This all changes, though, when the tiger helicopter shows up. Boris goes out for a smoke and the helicopter lands. It's worth noting that Boris does succeed in hacking into the FBI. That's true. And stops the CIA from tracing back to him by... It, it's techno babble, but he sends a spike which locks up their phone line, which is relevant because this is something that Natalia does to him later in the movie. So the helicopter arrive and off gets Xenia and Oromov, and they walk in and initiate a weapons test, or so they claim. They grab the base commander, they ask him to get the golden eye, and Oromov is like, all right, I'm timing you go get it and they initiate the test firing procedure for the petya satellite it's petya and mishka Mm -hmm. are the the two satellites they have in orbit yes they initiate the test firing of the petya satellite while this is happening natalia goes and makes herself a cup of tea in the kitchen i love the exchange with the commander when ormov arrives that the commander's like oh general ormov if i had known and ormov just cuts him off with you would have been ready this is an unscheduled test (laughs) it's just like oh crap I hope I can perform this test while crapping my pants. The base commander does as he's told. He goes to the safe, he gets the golden eye key and returns it to Oromov. And Oromov is like, all right, 30 seconds. Thank you. Good time. And then Xenia cocks her gun and guns down everybody in the room, getting very high on the uh, the violence that she is inflicting upon everyone. To the point that there's this great shot of Oromov just staring at her like, what is up with this one? Yeah. 
Even he looks a little uncomfortable with what a good time she's having. <laughs> yeah. Anyhow, they initiate a firing of the weapon. They walk over to the firing console and they initiate not a test firing, but a real firing of the weapon targeting Severnaya itself. And while they're doing this, they hear a crash and tinkle in the kitchen area. So Xenia goes off to the kitchen to investigate. She finds some coffee fresh coffee on the floor, looks around the room to see where the, the one person that escaped was, and she sees that a vent in the ceiling has been broken open, so she fires into the vent in the ceiling and then returns, quipping that she had to ventilate someone. <laughs> that's, a good, that's a pretty good joke. Yeah. There's also a little bit with one of the other programmers who was clearly a friend of Natalia's, barely able to hit the alarm before being spotted and further gunned down by Xenia. And she looks a little panicked and Oromov doesn't look like he gives a crap. He's just like, their best response time is 19 minutes. They'll be late. <laughs> and Xenia's like, all right. And it's like, man, Oromov knows exactly what he's doing. Yeah. They set up the weapon to fire. There's going to be like there's a timer on it, obviously, because the satellite is not in orbit. So the satellite has to get into position. So they take the time between initiating the firing and the firing happening to vacate the facility. They take the firing key with them. They vacate the facility, they get back into the Tiger helicopter, and they take off. And uh, then all hell breaks loose. A small detail that I really like is that the satellite itself still has CCCP markings, implying that it's been up there for many years. Mm -hmm. I like that a lot. I don't know why I only just noticed it this time. I was like, wait a minute, it's not CCCP anymore. All right, so then we return to MI6. In fact... We cut to the new MI6 building, which is the real MI6. This is the actual secret intelligence building in London, which was built in 1991. And so now they're like, well, I'm just going to start using them in the James Bond films now. So often referred to as Voxel Cross. Voxel Cross. Yeah, it's on Voxel. Oh, OK. That's that is a place. Yes. All right. I was trying to make a Minecraft joke and I could not formulate uh, one rapidly v enough. V-A-U-X-H-A-L-L. Vox Hall. Yes. Okay. B but if you're from there, it's Voxel. Got it. Inside the building, Bond meets Moneypenny. This is Money. I love this. This is Moneypenny played by Samantha Bond. No relation. <laughs> Samantha Bond has played many, many roles in the large and small screen over the years. Her most extensive TV role, or probably the, like the most known TV role, just because the show is very popular, is Lady Rosamond Painswick in Downton Abbey. I've never watched an episode of Downton Abbey, but I know someone who has. I also know my parents. <laughs> I was referring to Meg. I know. They, my parents love Downton Abbey. Absolutely a, a Downton Abbey fiend. In the scene, Moneypenny is wearing a fantastic dinner dress, which Bond comments on and money pennies like money penny is immediately this establishes money penny's character so well and so quickly bond sort of ribs her about this is like oh is this what you wear when you know when it's outside of normal business hours and she's like i was actually on a date if you must know with a gentleman because not every waking moment is spent hoping that i can dress up nice to run down to mi6 to help out the great james bond i delivered that line way more sarcastically than she does she does it in a very playful way but it is mm -hmm. very clear that she's like giving him the gears but there is still yeah. the dynamic of them playfully flirting it's much more playful than it was in the dalton movies where caroline bliss's money penny was just like unabashedly horny for bond it's this is much 
more similar to Lois Maxwell's Money Penny, but less overt than that. But they do have a good exchange where Bond, finding out that Money Penny was on a date, says he's devastated. What would I ever do without you? She says, As far as I'm aware, you've never had me. Bond says, Well, hope springs eternal. She says, This could qualify as sexual harassment, to which he says, Really? What's the penalty? And she says, One day you have to make good on your innuendos. <laughs> they are still very much on the same page here. Yes. They are teasing each other and it is good natured and their relationship is such that they are both okay with it. Mm -hmm. They arrive at the, I guess, the situation room where Bill Tanner, played by Michael Kitchen, is there. Tanner is the MI6 chief of staff. He tells Bond that they have satellite photos of the Severnaya weapons facility and they found the Eurocopter. And there's a she's right behind me, isn't she, moment where <laughs> Tanner says, it seems your hunch was correct. It's a shame the evil queen of numbers wouldn't let you <laughs> follow up on the hunch. <laughs> M, the evil queen of numbers, played by Judy Dench, says, if I want sarcasm, Mr. Tanner, I will talk to my children. Thank you. <laughs> so, yes, this is Judy Dench as M. I don't know what I can tell you about Dame Judy Dench that will possibly do justice to the breadth of her career. Yeah. Judy Dench is such a good actress. She won a Best Supporting Actor Oscar for 12 minutes of screen time. Wow. <laughs> she played Queen Elizabeth in Shakespeare in Love and stole the movie. Wow. I mean, yeah, it's Judy Dench. Yeah. <laughs> Are you going to give the Oscar to someone else? <laughs> I'm frankly surprised that she didn't win an Oscar for Best Supporting Actress in The Chronicles of Riddick. <laughs> I love that the story for her being in that movie is that just Vin Diesel asked her and was really insistent but charismatic. And she was like, all right, sure, why not? My second favorite story out of that movie is potentially apocryphal, but apparently they spent their downtime playing D&D &D together. Yeah, or at least he convinced her to play D&D &D at least one time. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Judy Dench is great and would continue to play M in many subsequent Bond films. I'm, I love that they kept her on as M for continuity for the Daniel Craig movies. I think that's great. Absolutely. So she lets Tanner continue and he explains that the helicopter just left Severnaya and there was an alarm and some MiGs have been scrambled and they're heading to Severnaya to check it out and they're not sure exactly what's happening. Intercut with this, we see back at Severnaya that Natalia is alive, even though it looked like she had hidden in the venting in the ceiling because she tried to pull the vents down. She actually hid in a cup because she tried to hide in the ceiling so like wrenched on the thing and that's the last we saw of her and then we saw Xenia shoot up the ceiling but we find out she didn't actually hide in the ceiling so she's in shock because all of her friends and co-workers are dead and then she sees on the enormous display board that one of the golden eyes is about to fire on her location the golden eye weapon system does indeed fire we will find out through explanation later in the scene that this is an emp it is detonating a nuclear weapon in orbit such that it generates a massive electromagnetic pulse that knocks out anything electronic and as far as this movie is concerned makes it explode <laughs> that's how knocking out electronics work right i'm fairly confident that in real life all that would happen is that everything would just stop 
Yes. I've never seen a real EMP go off. I've only seen it go off in movies and video games where it's always very impressive. But I'm pretty sure, having dealt minimally with electronics, that if an EMP went off, everything would very anticlimactically just stop. That's my understanding, too. I imagine that there's probably some circumstances where some electrical feedback happens or what have you as things are coming to a stop. But this is a James Bond movie. It's fantasy. Yeah. So everything explodes. Natalia manages to hide, but boy, everything explodes. Back in the Situation Room, their satellite gets knocked out, and so they lose satellite surveillance, and to which Tanner is very surprised. Two of the Russian jet planes collide with each other in the air. The third one crashes into the enormous satellite dish at Severnaya, and we get a shot of the Tiger helicopter flying away with like some sort of electrical zippy zaps on it, but otherwise unaffected, because it's also immune to EMP. Right. Once things have calmed down and stopped exploding, Natalia tries to leave, but the voice command computer to open the door that we saw Oromov use earlier, because everything is just very well established in this movie is broken like everything else so she can't get out like the door won't open to let her leave but eventually it's possibly not a good thing but the satellite dish (laughs) itself tips forward and the i don't know the pokey part in the middle i don't know what the there's surely there's a name for it but the spiky bit in the middle of a satellite dish (laughs) comes through the ground meaning the ceiling of the room that she's in all the way through and she manages to dive out of the way but it essentially creates a ladder so she's able to climb up out of the basement into the snow and the fire of the surface and stumble away from the wreckage natalia is having either a really bad day or a really good day depending on your perspective to 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 whom is this a good day (laughs) well i mean she survives like seven near-death experiences here (laughs) okay fair enough she has got a lot of luck on her side here but she's having a miserable day (laughs) back in the situation room tanner runs down the litany of everyone who's had their satellites knocked out and then their satellite comes into view and they are somehow able (laughs) their video comes back up and they're all like my god as if they can see that things are different i guess they're just better at looking at these images than i am because i'm like i it's so zoomed out i can't tell anything but they immediately can tell that one of the fighters has crashed into the satellite dish and the helicopter is gone they assume that this is somebody on the inside and bond Mm -hmm. figures maybe this person knows who that is as he notices on the satellite imagery natalia stumbling away from the facility Yes, it's all thermal imaging, yeah. so the like he can see Natalia because she's a little bright spot in the otherwise cold region. I like the little dig we get here. Oh, right. Where Bond is like, is, is this feed live? And M is like, unlike the Americans, we prefer not to get our news from CNN. Our bad news, specifically. Our bad news from CNN, yes. <laughs> That line was good then and it's good now. Yep. Natalia collapses in the snow, basically not sure how she's going to get away from there until she runs into the sled dog team. And she looks thrilled and it is just implied and assumed that she gets away from there thanks to the dog sled. Mm Mm-hmm. Back in M's office, gosh, without literally reading this scene line by line, I just need to say that this is a great scene. The exchanges between M and Bond in this scene are really good. It sets the tone for who Judi Dench is as M. It sets the tone for James Bond in the 90s, but it's done so well. They just, they... It's phenomenal. They act this scene so, so well. 
the big sort of marquee line, I think, is that M considers Bond a sexist, misogynist dinosaur and a relic of the Cold War. <laughs> yep. To which Bond does not really have a particularly quippy comeback. He's just sort of like, eh. I love this scene because it established like it establishes a couple of things. We've learned already that M, this M at least sort of comes from like an, an analytics or an accounting branch and so is concerned with money, thus the evil queen of numbers. And so we're already sort of prepared to dislike her because the character that we, has been our tether to the movie so far is spoken to by the chief of staff as if he doesn't like this character. We don't know that. Bond never really gratifies his response, but the impression that we're given is that like as one of the boys he doesn't like her mm. and he's quite professional through this and you're right he does not actually really even come to his own defense in response to m but m comes out of the gate and is basically like i i don't really feel like you in particular and the double o's generally are the best tool i have in my toolbox anymore but then she also completely redeems uh, redeems is the wrong word but she establishes her credibility right because the other big thing that comes out of this scene is she says you doubt that i have the balls to send you to your death well i will but i won't do it on a whim <laughs> <laughs> and establishes that she means business and she will do what she think is right in the, the situation without regret or hesitation or fear. She is 100% dead focused on the mission which is really, really good. Like she establishes herself so well and it lays this groundwork for the relationship that will develop between Bond and M as played by Judy Dench across the following seven movies. Yeah. And it's just such a great piece of groundwork to lay. This scene is gangbusters. The whole scene is gangbusters. It really is. I also just like the simplicity of... It feels like a very old school line of like once that's all established, she says, I want you to find Ormov, figure out what he's doing and stop him. Mm -hmm. It's just such an old school, like get out there and solve the thing kind of line. Because mm -hmm. she mentions General Arkady Ormov, who Bond recognizes as the man that killed Alec Trevelyan nine years ago and notes oh they made him a general now interesting he's the head of space division m says that he considers himself the next iron man of russia which is why her analysts have ruled him out because why would the next iron man of russia kill so many russians and bond sort of quips you know like oh the same analysts that said that the helicopter wasn't going to be a problem the same analysts that said this and then that's what leads into that discussion about like Oh, you don't you, you don't like that I'm all about analysis and numbers, do you? And M also ends the scene by saying, oh, and Bond, come back alive, mm -hmm. which I like because she doesn't just want this guy to die just because she thinks he's, you know, an outdated spy tool. Yeah. And like, that's that's what I mean when I say like when I use the word redeem. Yeah sort of inappropriately but the scene starts her off as being this like number cruncher and then she establishes that no she's willing like she is a war fighter mm -hmm. and then ends the scene with this little note of humanity yeah and at like the seed of a like a workplace relationship <laughs> <laughs> and there's this great little character arc through the scene and it, it lays so much groundwork for m that it secures judy dench's role as i say for the next seven films it makes her one of the foundational aspects of the series as we continue forward from here <laughs> i'm sorry to make such a hard left turn but i just realized that i started to talk about something when we were doing all the production groundwork at the beginning of the movie 
and I never finished my thought. Oh. I talked about them not filming at Pinewood Film Studios, and I don't know what I talked about after that, but they... You're right. They took over a Rolls-Royce plant. Okay. There was a Rolls-Royce factory that was making Rolls-Royce aircraft that had closed like six months prior and then it became the new Aeon Productions offices. It was at the time the biggest interior factory space like in the world. It was like a million square feet or something. They filmed all the Harry Potter movies there. Oh, yeah. All right. Sorry. I don't know why I just thought of that. I was I think it was because we we cut in the movie. Now we cut to St. Petersburg and I was like, oh, yes, yeah, a location. Unlike all the sets in this movie. I was talking about sets earlier. Did I get distracted and forget to finish what I was talking about? (laughs) Holy moly. Anyway, we're in St. Petersburg now. We are. Great shot of people doing marching drills through the square in St. Petersburg. And we see Defense Minister Dmitry Mishkin, who looks like he's a little annoyed that maybe someone's running late. And there's this amazing room, this huge, dark room, lots of browns and reds and big columns and paintings of former Russian leaders this council of men sitting in chairs and general uramov arrives and he's there to present his report on what happened at the severnaya facility he says it was a freak accident obviously a test fire he says the peaceful work and potential profits that would have happened as a result of all this work has been set back years and as a result i tender my resignation as head of space division and all the people are like well what i don't i don't know about that and defense minister mishkin says it sounds like people aren't looking for your head here i just want to know your assurance that there's only the one satellite the one that fired he says yes i can absolutely give you that assurance we know he's lying Mm -hmm. And he says, right, right. And what of the two survivors? And Oromov's face just drops. He says, I was aware only of the one, Boris Grishenko. And Mishkin says, yes, there was another survivor as well whose body was not found among the rubble, Natalia Simonova, level two programmer. And he's like, I'm gonna look into this matter immediately myself personally and mishkin says yes it seems presumptuous of you to tender your resignation so quickly when you haven't even finished your investigation (laughs) it's like this guy's sus yeah (laughs) this is the scene with michael wilson in it by the way he's the man very clearly visible in one of the shots staring at oromov with big thick rimmed glasses all right very good one of the things that strikes me about this is we're we're now we've reached the point in the bond movies where we had talked way back in the day about how all of the mi6 sets were these these big traditional opulent rooms with stone columns and paintings and tapestries on the wall and all of the like russian sets were these stark austere very sharp lines or like harsh lines and and so on like all the set design was i I can't think of the right word but that whole thing has now flipped Mm -hmm. (laughs) it is now like the russian sets here are the ones that are the big opulent or the russian government sets at least are the big opulent traditional stone pillars and tapestries and paintings and mi6 is now all extremely modern high tech you know top of the line very new everything it's just interesting to me how that that flip has taken place yeah the set that we are in now would not have been recognizable or would have been stylistic appropriate as an mi6 or british government set like three movies ago (laughs) and now it's a russian set 
Yeah. And it's interesting because it sort of denotes the changing values of the depictions of the two nations and they're sort of like different statures on the world stage at the time and that kind of thing. Yeah. Now everything that is good is clean and modern. Yeah. Yeah. I I mean, it's the values of the filmmakers at the time influencing this, obviously, but interesting little stylistic note. Mm -hmm. Speaking of new and modern, we get a Q scene. (laughs) This is one of my favorite Q scenes. This Q scene is really good. It really is good. Bond arrives and Q is there on an electric scooter with his leg in a cast. And Bond comments on it. And Q fires a rocket out of the cast and then stands up because his leg isn't in the cast. Because he asks him how he hurt himself. He's like, did you hurt yourself skiing? And then he fires the rocket and b- misses the dummy that he's aiming at and blows up like a different section of the lab and says, no, hunting. <laughs> Like he just blows up a a sofa. (laughs) Yeah. Shows Bond his new car, which is now a BMW. I wanted this car from the age of 16 to the age of 20. I wanted this exact car. For those four years? Yes, the James Bond car. This is a BMW Z3. It's an interesting choice of blue. It's not a bad choice of blue. It's just an unusual choice for a car. Mm-hmm. We actually talked about this in uh, in Living Daylights, where it's like we've got to the point where people know what a Bond movie is and we don't need to get the litany of everything in the car. So Q just says it's got all the normal bells and whistles. He meant, he does mention specifically there are Stinger missiles behind the headlights, but otherwise he's like it's got all the usual things and then they don't, they don't go into it. Also, the missiles never get used. Yeah, wow. It, they are used for the purposes of a joke, but that's it. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> they're, they're referenced in a joke later on, but they don't get used in the movie. Q shows Bond a belt that fires a piton and length of cord out of the buckle so that you could use it for climbing or swinging from. And while this is happening, a man in a British telecom phone box in the background gets compressed by an airbag. He gives Bond his flight tickets, which he has x-ray scanned with a fun tray that he has, and then gives Bond a pen that is also a, I think he says a class three grenade. Class four grenade. Class four grenade. Yeah. It's a little clicky pen and you click it three times to arm it and then click it four times to disarm it. Similar to the scene in The Living Daylights again, where Bond threatens to wolf whistle to blow Q's head up. Bond clicks it three times and then is like, how long did you say the fuse was? Because it's a four second fuse. He's like, how long did you say the fuse was? And just holds it there and Q grabs (laughs) it back from him and is like oh grow up this is also the scene that i noticed and it's this is one of those it's ruined for me so now you have to have it ruined for you as well moments okay desmond llewellyn just has really big hands Just unusually thick fingers. He's clearly someone that works a lot with his hands, which makes sense for the character. But I'm just like, that pen is disappearing in these meat paws. He puts his hands over his ears in a moment. He looks like he could palm his entire head like a basketball. (laughs) Yeah. So because he demonstrates the exploding pen on the dummy by clicking it and the thing blows up. And then he says to Bond, don't say it. And Bond says, <laughs> the, is it the writings on the wall? Like, it's it's not even clear if that's the quip that Q was expecting. I mean, so I think our our comments on YouTube caught it or predicted it was a YouTube or, or somewhere else predicted what the joke was. Great for writing a poison pen letter. This is him heading off the poison pen letter joke. <laughs> Yeah. (laughs) So Bond has to go hunting for another one and comes up with the writings on the wall. And then my favorite quip in the whole thing. (laughs) 
<laughs> Q gets distracted by like an ejector seat firing in the background and Bond picks up this enormous submarine sandwich that's sitting on the table and Q, as he is wont to do, quickly grabs it back from him and says, don't touch that. It's my lunch. <laughs> It's so good. It's so good. Uh, so now Bond arrives in Russia, and there he meets Jack Wade, CIA. He sure does. Played by Joe Don Baker, who I will remind you and restate what I said two episodes ago. Joe Don Baker plays himself in every movie. <laughs> <laughs> he really does. We literally just saw this guy. Yep. It's so weird. Remind me again who we saw him as. He played Brad Whitaker in The Living Daylights. He sure did. But he's friendly this time. Yeah. He was also Mitchell and Mitchell. I need to talk about Mitchell. <laughs> Another excuse to talk about Mitchell. Hey, Joel, it's Mitchell. Um, Bond goes up and tries to do a code phrase. He just walks up beside the guy and goes, in England, April's a spring month. Wade just looks at him and is like, oh, great. Another stiff-eyed Brit with your secret codes and your passwords. Come on, my car's over here. I love the car he's leaning against is not his car. <laughs> I love how underfunded the CIA is in these movies. <laughs> It's come up a few times, uh, particularly with Felix, where he's like always befuddled. But oftentimes he looks well financed. But for for the duration of Wade's tenure in these films, he is so hard done by. Yeah, I love it. Eventually, Bond wants to confirm that this is in fact him. So he holds Wade at gunpoint until he gives him the password. Wade says there is that close enough for government work. And Bond says, no, show me the rose. No, no idea what that means. Wade says, please, no. But Bond has a gun. And so he's like, all right. And so he unbuckles his pants and pulls his underwear down so that you can see on his hip a tattoo of a rose captioned Muffy. Bond says, Muffy? And Wade says, third wife. <laughs> and you know what I love about Jack Wade? We actually find out a thing about his character outside of he's a CIA contact, which is that he clearly loves plants. Because at the end of this scene, he's like, I'm going to take you to meet a contact. He's a Russian guy. His name's Zukovska. He has a limp. Bond's like, Valentin Zukovska? Yeah, you know him? Yeah, I gave him the limp. You know, haha, which is a good line. And then they're about to get in the car and Wade just says, hey, Bond, you into gardening? And the scene cuts. <laughs> It's just such a random line, but it's like in all three scenes that Wade is in this movie, he makes random commentary about plants. Or in this case, he just asks Bond if he's into gardening. It's never acknowledged by other characters. It's just a thing that Wade does because he clearly loves plants and just wants to talk about them, even if no one else cares. And I, I, right. I really like that. It's such a small thing <laughs> that could have easily been cut out for being too weird because it's weird, but it's fun. <laughs> Fun and nice. Yep. I like it. He, Wade is a good character. I'm glad he comes back in a later film because he's a good character and I appreciate him immensely. He he lends a sense of like, you're right, weirdness, but also just levity. Mm -hmm. <laughs> he's a good foil for Bond because he's so stylistically different. He's just very sort of gregarious and disheveled looking and clearly sort of fed up with his posting. I mean, this this character is like if Mitchell from Mitchell grew up and <laughs> got a job at the CIA. <laughs> 
there is a small scene that I've sort of conflated two of them together where the car breaks down. He's like, oh, yeah, don't worry. The car will get you there. And then it's broken down. And there's a funny bit where he's like, hand me that hammer. No, no, the sledgehammer. And then hits it. And then the car comes back to life. But anyway, he does percussive maintenance. Yeah. Before they get to Zukovska, we see Natalia enter a computer store. The man who runs the store is like, can I can I help you? And she says, yes. Is this all you have? Indicating the floor models of the computers. And he's like, how many do you need? And she pulls out a piece of paper and says, oh, 30 for the Russian school, 20 for the Swedish, like listing off like she's a big purchaser for schools to buy a whole bunch of computers. And he's like, uh, 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 yes. Uh, would you like a demonstration model? And she's like, yes, I would like a demonstration model in a quiet place to use it. Love it. Social engineering. Brilliant. Mm -hmm. So she gets on the computer and she contacts Boris because, of course, Boris's body also was not among the dead because he had gone outside for a smoke. Mm -hmm. We haven't seen him since the helicopter landed. So they communicate. He's like, you aren't safe. Trust no one. Meet me at this church in an hour. Back to Bond and Wade as they arrive at Valentine's place. And another line that I love, Wade goes, are you sure you want to do this? The last guy who dropped on him unannounced went home air freight in very small boxes, which is just <laughs> such a line. Uh-huh. We jump back to Natalia getting to the church where she's said to meet Boris. Just a lot of really stylistic cinematography as she's very unsettled and paranoid because he said trust no one and she's freaked out and she runs out of the place and runs directly into Boris and she's so happy to see him and he says shh, shh and she turns around and sees Zenya. Boris is working with Oromov and Zenya and now they've captured Natalia. Back in Bond store we see Valentin Zukovsky, played by Robbie Coltrane. You're a Russian, Robbie. Robbie Coltrane, best known for playing Hagrid in the Harry Potter movies. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's great in this scene. This movie is just a collection of great scenes. It really is. <laughs> This whole scene is good. But it's not just a collection of great scenes. It's a collection of great scenes that come together to make a cohesive whole that is yeah. really good. Yeah. Robbie Coltrane's been in a whole bunch of things. He's also well known to UK audiences as Fitz in Cracker. But, I mean, probably worldwide known best for playing Hagrid in the Harry Potter movies. He's great there and he's great here. And this character actually comes back in a future Bond movie, too. Mm, right. I'd forgotten about that. And he gets a great line here as well, because Bond puts a gun up to his head. He can't see that it's Bond. And he immediately, just from hearing it, goes, hmm, Walther, PPK, I only know of three men who use such a gun, and I believe I've killed two of them. <laughs> It is a good line. And I, I like that it sort of established, like it's in tune with his character as well, because he is, of course, a weapons dealer. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so it like it does a good job of sort of establishing his weapons dealer cred right off the bat. Yeah, his goons get the drop on Bond and he gets led into the main room for, I mean, sort of like questioning, threatening discussion while a woman does a very, very, very bad performance of Stand By Your Man. With a heavy Russian accent. Stand By your man she and she can't hit the notes and this is an early role of mini driver wow <laughs> yeah random mini driver yeah i hadn't realized that until you said it isn't that weird yeah <laughs> so bond asks him for a favor and another great line from valentin here is he says my knee because this is the limp that bond gave him my <laughs> knee hurts every morning twice as much when it's raining do you know how often it rains here and then yells to one of his guys he's like tell him and his guy is like um it, uh 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 it, shut up 
Bond eventually makes a deal. He's like, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. Let me let me tell you, let me tell you what's up. I want you to get me a meeting with Yanis. And the way this is gonna work is we're gonna do a deal so that it can't be traced to you. You're gonna get a bunch of money and their guy gets arrested. You get away scot-free, so you get to keep the money. Yanis owes you a favor and you and me are square. And Valentin's like, sounds great. We never see any of that happen. They just talk about it. Mm-hmm. But the important thing we learn in this scene is that whoever Yanis is, no one really knows who he is or what he looks like all that anyone knows all that valentin knows is that he is a lien's cossack and i remembered that and was like oh i'm gonna have to look that up but they actually explain everything in the movie the tldr the cossacks are an ethnic group within the soviet or i mean okay so they are still an ethnic group relevant here they were an ethnic group within the soviet union that in world war ii fought against communism meaning they were aligned with the nazis so they were like oh I, we also don't like communism. You don't like communism. Great. So we'll work with Hitler. Not a good idea. After the war, the UK, as James Bond says in this scene, not our finest hour, repatriated them. The Wikipedia entry calls it the repatriation of the Cossacks, meaning they were returned to Russia to be killed basically is what happened they Mm -hmm. specifically cossacks from liens they were lied to they were told by the english they were being taken to a convention essentially where they could talk about what they wanted to do going forward they said they would be returned to their village afterwards they were lied to they were taken to russia many of them were executed so that's all we know about Yanis. We we presume that that whole plan goes well because the next scene that we see is Bond at the hotel that he said he would be at waiting to meet his contact from Yanis, which turns out to be Xenia on a top. Then we get a, I think it's a sex fight. I think I would describe it that way. Yeah, they don't, at no point does anyone enter anybody else, but it's... <laughs> It's definitely verging on sex while still being a fight. Is it a sexy fight? I don't think it's a particularly sexy fight. Yeah, I I, I guess it depends on what you're into. Bond isn't into having his lip bitten. No, there's some some lip biting. There's some bottom burning. There's some pain play. Yeah, there sure is. My favorite line is she rushes at him to the point that they're embracing and their faces are touching, like their noses are pressed against one another. And Bond goes, that's close enough (laughs) (laughs) implying that she could be any closer to him yeah the scene that was of course like in the trailers as i recall the line that was in the trailers is at the end of this scene Mm -hmm. she's still trying to do a sex fight and he's like nope we're done here he's got her at the point of a gun and uh, she makes a move and he's like no 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 more foreplay take me to yanis (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, she does at one point try to kill him with her legs in this scene. Yeah. So at gunpoint, she takes him to Yanis. They're at a place that I only know is called Statue Park because the video game level is called Statue Park. (laughs) (laughs) But it's it's where they're storing a bunch of old Soviet statues. It's a really cool location. Also, as Xenia drops him off here, we get proof positive that this is a James Bond movie. Oh, because of the judo chop to the neck? Because he judo chops her in the back of the neck to render her unconscious before getting out of the car. Yeah. So it's this amazing set of this place littered with pieces of old statue and Bond spots the tiger helicopter is there. And then eventually he does see Yanis and it's a voice he recognizes. And we see that it is Alec Trevelyan alive. 
after all these years. Mm -hmm. We were just talking about how all these scenes are great, and this is no exception. They play back and forth off of one another so well in this scene. Yeah, yeah. Sean Bean manages to project this, like, affable and amicable, but also sinister presence through this whole scene. I like that he tips over the course of this scene that he considered inviting James into the syndicate, but was pretty sure that Bond was too much the Queen's lapdog to be willing to entertain the idea. Mm -hmm. But it's the very like, you know, we're we're friends. This is this is business. We're going to have to kill each other. But, you know, we still have history. This is also where we find out I believe this is where we find out anyway, that all double O's are orphans. Yes. Because he says, while your parents had the good fortune to be killed in a climbing accident, mine were not so lucky. And his origin story is that his parents were indeed Leanne's Cossacks and they survived the executions and had him, but that his dad couldn't live with the shame. It was survivor's guilt, essentially, of living with the shame of surviving the repatriation and the firing squads and so killed his mother and then himself or that was the my mm -hmm. pronouns there were awkward trevelyan's father killed trevelyan's mother and then himself thereby orphaning him mm -hmm. he says mi6 figured he wouldn't remember and brought him into the double o program which still seems like a bad idea but what you know <laughs> <laughs> so he's been playing the long game until he can finally take revenge against england it, uh, been playing a very long game there's a great moment where bond makes to kill him by raising his gun back up because he'd lowered his gun because he's shocked because it's his old friend and then they talk more and he raises his gun back up and trevelyan says please it is insulting to consider that i have not predicted your every move <laughs> and bond agrees bond's like oh yeah you're right <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so th this scene ends with the reveal, reveal, but with Trevelyan's comment that, you know, I did think of bringing you into the, my little plan, but you're too loyal and you wouldn't have gone for it. So, sorry, <laughs> you're going to have to die. And Bond gets tranked in the neck and falls over unconscious. Trevelyan mentions that the facial disfigurement that he has, he has some scars across the right side of his face, are there because Bond changed the timing on those bombs because Trevelyan thought he had six minutes when he only had three and suffered these injuries as a result of that explosion. Right. Now, I hate I hate to do this. I hate to poke holes in a movie that we're clearly very much enjoying, but mm -hmm. the implication is that Trevelyan and Oromov have been working together for at least a decade. And when Oromov shot Trevelyan in the head in the pre-title sequence, that those were blanks or something, whatever, that Trevelyan did not die from that because right. he obviously acted like he was dead, but these scars were from the explosion. So he didn't die from the gunshot. Why did they do that? Because they were still trying to kill Bond. So like hmm. the intent there was that they were going to kill Bond and then presumably MI6 would assume that both agents were lost in the mission. The only reason to do that whole rigmarole with pretending to shoot Trevelyan is on the slimmest outside chance that Bond does actually escape, which they clearly were never expecting. Right. So I definitely have never thought that through to that extent. Neither had I until last night in the shower, and I went, oh no, oh no, why am I thinking about this? <laughs> oh no. Okay, so to provide an alternate theory here. Please, I'll take anything. It doesn't have to be good. I have always, always, always taken it to be true that Uramov shot 006. That that was not faked. 
he did shoot him. And that potentially in the intervening years of him not dying and presumably having been taken captive by the Russians, or in the intervening years where he was making his weapons-stealing empire, he came to bring Uramov into that fold by being able to provide value to him. Like, hey, you hate England and I hate England. Let's hate England together. And that the mission nine years ago was like legitimately a mission that he was doing and that went wrong. But... <laughs> My assumption of all that was predicated on the fact that I thought that Bond had seen Alec get shot before reducing the timer on the bombs, which is not what happened. He reduced the timer on the bombs as soon as Alec got caught. So I don't know how to make this make sense, but my read on it was that that mission did go wrong and it was consequent to the shooting and the ostensible capture by Oromov that Alec and Oromov ended up working together and that the mission as we see it happen happened the way it happened that makes you know what that that makes a lot more sense i yeah i buy that and also it means that i don't have to <laughs> be worried about <laughs> that weird <laughs> logical flaw okay awesome <laughs> allow me to plaster over the hole you've poked in this movie it's sort of a an amateur job but maybe it'll hold it's not load-bearing plaster cool bond is awoken by someone screaming their head off for him to wake up in fact it is natalia because bond is now tied up in the pilot seat of the tiger helicopter and natalia is tied to the co-pilot seat in the tiger helicopter they're both in the helicopter which is counting down to launch missiles from the helicopter aimed at the location of the helicopter <laughs> <laughs> they're being very efficient they're like these are our loose ends let's kill them all at once the helicopter bond natalia done yeah bond tries to literally use his head slamming on the console in front of him he manages to turn the rotors on which is not uh, helpful but i mean i guess it's kind of impressive <laughs> the timer counts down the rockets fire and they watch them fire away from the helicopter and then turn around and aim back at the helicopter while looking around the cockpit desperately bond notices the massive ejector button weird place for an ejector button but maybe that is where it is i don't i don't know i'm not gonna question it it's beside his head so after a few attempts he manages to ram his head into the ejector button launching the entire pilot co-pilot compartment out of the helicopter at some g-force and then it falls back to ground with some parachutes they get out and natalia tries to get away bond knows that she must know something so he tries to grab her she fights back but then they are caught and captured by the russians by a lot of Russians. <laughs> and they are taken to a facility that you would know from Goldeneye, known as the library. The archives. The archives, sorry. You're right. I'm getting my Goldeneyes and my Halos confused. The archives. Correct me if I'm wrong. In the game, there was like three different variations of this level because there was like archives and then something and then the stack that was both of them. Yes, in multiplayer thank you yes the campaign follows the events of the movies relatively relatively closely uh with some liberties taken but the, those three are all variants of this map for multiplayer they are marched into the little interrogation room that you start that level in they have a brief conversation where they sort of establish their credentials to one another because they haven't had a lot of time to talk up to this point bond basically is telling natalia that like you need to tell me everything so i can help you she's like I don't know anything. I can't tell you anything. 
in walks Defense Minister Mishkin and starts questioning Bond. What is the purpose of the of your terrorist attack? Why have you done this? What you know, what have you done? Bond is like, I had nothing to do with this. They get into a, a sort of pissing match with one another as Mishkin is like, the, the penalty for terrorism is death. And Bond is like, well, what's the penalty for treason? As they both suspect each other of being responsible for what's going on. Natalia cuts in and is like, listen, both of you stop. You're, you're like boys with toys. She lets loose that the person who is responsible for this is Orimov, which Mishkin does not expect. <laughs> Despite his apparent sort of suspicion of Urimov earlier, was was not expecting that to happen. He's surprised, but he accepts it. Like he's he's like, holy crap, that tracks. Yeah, yeah. Like he he, he doesn't disbelieve it at all. So he's like, all right, you two are going to stay here in this cell. I have to go report this. I do like that Bond asked Natalia and seemed to convince her, like, look, we only have one another. You have to tell me. And she told him some amount of stuff, but she didn't even tell him everything that she knows. She doesn't tell him about Orimov. Only when Mishkin is there, does she let that go. Mm -hmm. the, there's a nice little like book ending to this scene as well, because when they get set, sat down and Mishkin comes in and starts asking questions, Bond is like, no one really goes for a good interrogation anymore. It's a lost art. And then they start arguing with each other. And then Natalia Natalia gives away Orimov and Mishkin as he's wrapping up is like you were saying something about the lost art of interrogation bond. <laughs> <laughs> So he goes and makes to get up as Orimov busts into the room. He says, you know, I, you know, he comes in still trying to play the role of the, the investigating general, right? And he's, he's like, I must protest. This is my investigation. I should be conducting the interview. And Mishkin is like, hmm, sounds like you're responsible, bro. And so he shoots him. He shoots the guard. He shoots Mishkin. He then sort of like formulates a plan on the fly saying, you know, oh, the the agent, secret agent James Bond killed Defense Minister Mishkin and then empties the gun as he's saying this and then hands Bond's gun back to Bond because he used Bond's gun to kill them because it was on the table. Hands Bond's empty, now empty gun back to Bond and is like, he was killed trying to escape and makes for his gun. And of course, this sets Bond on the run, right? He manages to get the drop on Orimov while he is sort of like fumbling for his gun. Guards come running in and Bond manages to beat them up and he grabs a, an assault rifle from one of the guards and they take off running through this facility up into the library, shooting many a guard dude along the way. They get into the archives. They create more chaos by knocking over some bookcases. And, and at this point, Bond is just looking for a way to escape. He pulls out his little belt gadget that Q gave him earlier with the intent of sort of like swinging himself and Natalia out of harm's way but Natalia falls through a grate in the floor that has come loose in the chaos in the archives falls into the possession of Orimov but Bond manages to get away by swinging out a, a window into the armory yard out in front of the archives where he he pointedly notices a tank he does yeah, he pointed, pointedly notices a tank and Orimov piles Natalia into a black car and takes off. <laughs> he's got to make his escape because he's also probably rumbled at this point. He He's still in damage control mode, but he's got a hostage. And so he takes off in this car through St. Petersburg trying to get away. And we will learn he's trying to take Natalia to Yanis. So what? What happens next, Graham? Well, as Orimov's car drives around the walls of the armor yard, a tank bursts through it, and then we get just one of the best vehicle chases. <laughs> In any 
in any movie. It, yeah, it's so good. What's so what's interesting is not only is Bond the pursuer in this, but he's also in the position of power, which is rare for Bond. Mm -hmm. Usually car chases in Bond movies is Bond running away. But in this one, it's Bond driving a tank, <laughs> chasing Oromov and his driver and their tiny car. <laughs> through the streets of st petersburg it's so good it's such a good scene it goes on for a while there's too many little things to go through it like frame by frame yeah if you're curious a lot of these shots were done on a set because there were certain things that they just sort of had to have better control for but some amount of it was shot in st petersburg <laughs> Presumably not the parts where buildings are being torn apart by a tank. No, not those ones. But the fact that they were able to shoot like, hey, this is this is this is how times have changed since the wall fell. Right. The fact that they were able to shoot right. any amount of this particular scene running a tank through the streets of St. Petersburg in actual St. Petersburg is kind of impressive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The hallmark of this entire chase scene is Bond driving through a statue of like military general on what appears to be a Pegasus and the statue sticks to the top of the tank. And so he's driving around St. Petersburg with this statue on top of the tank, which he manages to free and drop on a pursuing set of vehicles. After bursting through a truck full of Perrier cans. <laughs> so there's a tank littered with Perrier cans with a statue on top of it hauling ass through the streets. It's amazing. Yeah. This scene also has my favorite line from Oromov where there's a bunch of pedestrians in front of him and he barks at his driver use the bumper that's what it's for <laughs> and we get an, a, an external shot of the car just mowing through pedestrians there are just some terrific stunts and shots in this scene there's one in particular that I have no idea how they did it is this the one where the car gets mostly crushed yeah it's dry. Like there's clearly a person in it and the car is driving like it looks like the tank was meant to clip the back of it. And it does. But the tread of the tank just ingests the car under the tank <laughs> and the car disintegrates. I noticed that one myself. I think in the prior shot, there are human drivers. And I think in the shot that you're looking at, they're dummies. And the car is they must be. maybe being pulled on a cable or something. Oh, they must be, or else the driver of that would absolutely be killed. <laughs> yeah. But they don't seem to be moving the people in the car. It's it's only a couple mm. frames, but I probably that there were dummies. And then it's funny because in the shot after, you see the driver and passenger get out of the wreck. And it's like, there's no way for you to be in that wreck. <laughs> Yeah, the, the passenger I could see maybe surviving based on what's in that wreck. But yeah, no, the driver's seat went right under the treads. <laughs> yeah. So this scene comes to a conclusion as Uramov successfully evades Bond through St. Petersburg. And Bond successfully evades the authorities. That's the only part of this, yeah. honestly, this whole movie that I'm like, that doesn't make sense because he's still in the tank chasing <laughs> Uramov all the way to the train yards unfettered. Doing the least stealthy reconnaissance anyone has ever done, which I think is my favorite part of this scene, because Oromov pulls up into the train yard and there's an old missile train and we like an old Soviet missile train. We learn earlier in the film that this is Yanis's home base of operations. He lives on a Russian missile train. The car pulls up and then we get this shot of like the tank creeping along an overpass overlooking the rail yard as Bond is sitting in the driver's seat, like peering down on them. Really? <laughs> <laughs> Can they not hear this? Like, 
It's a tank, but it's a great little shot. It's very cute. I like it a lot. And so they pile onto the train where Yanis is, uh, well, where Alec is sitting having dinner and Xenia is along for the ride. This is a fairly brief scene where Trevelyan is like, so what what happened with Bond? Did he get away? Oromov taking a drink is nodding yes. And Trevelyan says, oh, good for Bond. Bad for you. The train, by the way, looks amazing. It's this like the style of the engine on it. It's just so angular and Soviet. It's amazing. It looks like it has a face. Mm-hmm. The front end of it looks like the face of one of those Easter Island statues. Oh, Moha, yeah. So since this is the 90s and Bond isn't going to be a gross creep pushing himself on women, Trevelyan gets to pick that one up, which is a little <laughs> bit more in keeping with the villain. Yeah. He says, you know, James and I used to share everything. God, I can barely say it myself. And yeah, so he grabs her and kisses her and she tries to fight him back. But he only stops because someone gets on the radio and is like, yo, there's a tank on the track in front of us. (laughs) There's a tunnel and the tank has appeared from the darkness out of the tunnel. It's such a good shot. On the track. And they're like, there's a tank on the track. And Trevelyan's like, oh, it's Bond. Top speed. Ram him. And the guy in the... For some reason, the guy running the train who's further forward than Trevelyan is, is like, okay. (laughs) And then like honks the horn. Yeah. Just in case. (laughs) Get out of the way, tank. Bond fires the tank's main gun, which barely puts a dent in the train, but does light it on fire, which makes for a compelling visual. Jumps out of the tank and hides to the side as the train barrels into and through the tank, completely immolating the tank and stopping the train, which is now itself partially engulfed in flames. Bond gets onto the train, has Trevelyan and Xenia at gunpoint, but unfortunately for him, General Oromov has Natalia at gunpoint. This is also where Trevelyan delivers his creepiest line of the movie, which is, lovely girl, tastes like strawberries. Wolf. So Trevelyan is like, well, now you have a choice. You can kill me or you can save her because you can only shoot one of us because they're on either side of Bond. So who is it? The girl or the mission? Hmm? Who will it be, Spider-Man? You're the love of your life, Mary Jane, or this gondola full of school children? (laughs) It's very similar. (laughs) I mean, this was this came first. Yeah, um, true. Trevelyan does some good quips about, you know, almost from a meta level. Did you ever truly find solace in the arms of all those women? And did it wash away the shame of all the ones you failed to save? I'm paraphrasing, but that's essentially he's trying to I mean, he's trying to dig at Bond and also sow a rift between him and Natalia, I guess. Mm -hmm. So he says, oh, go ahead, shoot her. She means nothing to me, which is, of course, a lie because he then does not shoot Trevelyan. He whips around, fires at Oromov, and does not whip back around in time to get Trevelyan and Xenia before they run out of the train car, locking Bond and Natalia inside. But that is the end of Oromov. So there's that. So while Bond tries to find a way out, by the way, Trevelyan and Xenia escape on a helicopter that's in one of the train cars, which is, from a gadget perspective, very good. It's very sweet. We also learn as Trevelyan's making his escape that he has set the train car to explode. There's a bomb aboard and he tells Bond that you have six minutes. I've set the timer for six minutes. The same six minutes you gave me. Natalia's like, what does that mean? Bond's like, we have three minutes. (laughs) It's not like a thing, right? Like, it's not like a surprise. He's just like, oh, God damn it, Alec. Okay, just say three minutes. Whatever, fine. It's almost like he puts too much a point on it because he's like, I've said if he had just if it were me, if I were 
evil double O Alec Trevelyan, I probably would have just said, I've set the timers for six minutes. Mm. Why put a finer point on it than that? I mean, yeah, in that case, you wouldn't have even had to have Natalia say anything, right? It would have just been like, you've got six minutes and then have James say, we have three minutes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> During this scene, while Bond's trying to find a way out of the train car, Natalia has set up on the computer because she's noticed that Boris is backing up his files remotely because this is Boris's mobile computer. And maybe she can do to him what he did to the CIA earlier, and then they can find out where they are. And then she barks at Bond, so find us a way off of the train car. And he's like, oh, yes, all right, right away. So the way off of the train car is his watch has a laser. So this is what I was talking about with the foreshadowing of the pre-title when he has the big gun that has the laser that opens up the, the, hatch. the hatch, is that that's not just foreshadowing for, yes, this is possible. It's also, that's nine years ago, and now the laser technology has gotten good enough that it can be in a watch. Yeah, <laughs> although I'm pretty sure he had a laser watch in, like, one of the 80s, 70s Bond movies? I don't know, maybe. I don't watch these movies. And if you've played Goldeneye the video game, you have escaped from this train car yourself in the same way. Mm -hmm. Where you had to use your little laser watch to open the hatch in the bottom of the train, because they replicated that relatively faithfully. There's a brief intercut with Boris having realized that he's being traced of him just like ripping circuit boards out of a cabinet and it's completely <laughs> like not technologically accurate but very funny yeah they don't find exactly where it is but they get as far as is it cuba yeah he's in cuba they don't know where in cuba but they're able to determine that he's in cuba before bond is like no we actually really need to leave the train right now because it is going to explode they do manage to get off the train it does explode natalia is like can you get in any vehicle without destroying it and he's like it's, it's standard company policy sorry <laughs> yeah it's a good quip mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, then they start making out they sure do and then we cut to cuba we sure do and in a needless stunt like this stunt did not have to be here but it is and it looks really challenging to do jack wade cia lands his plane right over their heads mm-hmm the plane, the pilot, they were talking about this in the special features. So they're like, uh, yeah, what's his name? The stunt pilot. He's up there right now. He's 71. <laughs> or I think it was 71. It was getting on quite a bit. And Kathleen was like, wait, let me do some quick mental math here. This guy was probably a World War II trick pilot. <laughs> Makes sense. Yeah. yeah. So he successfully lands this plane. Hold up. Before we move on, I think you've undersold this stunt a little bit because you said that he lands them over. He lands the plane over their heads. Bond and Natalia are in the BMW driving down a dirt road at speed and the pilot or Wade flies his little aircraft in over their heads and lands in front of their still moving car on a dirt road. And they're in a convertible too. <laughs> they are. After Jack Wade gets out, he approaches Bond and Natalia and comments to himself, looking around, surveying the landscape. He just goes, banyan trees. Hey, Bond. <laughs> I love it. I just love this about Wade that he's just like, I like plants. <laughs> So he gives Bond the plane. They're trading basically the plane for the car. And he's like, oh, what's the CIA going to do about this? And he's like, oh, us, we're going to do nothing. We don't know you're here. We don't know anything about this. We are not involved in your insertion into Cuba at all in any way. Because this is in, I guess, Puerto Rico. Mm -hmm. And he says, but if you need help, just, you know, send up a hauler. I'll send in the Marines. Her, her, her. And Bond's like, yeah, okay, sure. Sure you will. Fine. As far as the U.S. is concerned, they're going to go radar blackout at 6 a.m. tomorrow morning. So the no one in the U.S. notices so that they're going to be completely off book that they're there and they have to keep below. Wade says below 600 feet. Natalia says 300 feet or something 
Like Wade says some amount and Natalia corrects him that it needs to be even lower. Right. Bond gives Wade the keys to the BMW and says, by the way, don't push any of the buttons in there. And Wade says, I'm just going to go bombing around in it. And he's like, yeah, that's exactly what I'm talking about. (laughs) Then we get the only scene that I feel is like kind of tonally inconsistent with the movie. Okay, good. I I was going to comment on that, too where like the character that they're trying to develop in this scene has no basis in the rest of the movie at all. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like they're trying to do a, like a deep pensive. What does it mean to be James Bond kind of thing in this scene? And it just, it feels like it belongs in a different movie. <laughs> so they're sitting on a beach. Bond is looking sort of lonely, staring out at the sea. Natalia comes over and starts looking at him and she's like piecing together sort of what's going on in his mind. So she's like, he was your friend. Now he's your enemy and you will kill him. And then she she just sort of is like, is this the only way? Is this the only way you know how to live to be detached and keep your mind on the mission? And he he's like, well, that's it's how I stay alive. And she's like, no, it's it's how you stay alone. And then she turns to go away and he grabs her and pulls her back down and they start to make out. And that's basically the scene. Yeah. I just don't think it quite lands with how Bond has been the rest of the time. Yeah. I mean, we haven't really gotten the gist that like Brosnan's Bond or the Bond of this movie is all that bothered <laughs> by the history that he's had with Alec. The little bit that they give us here to sort of establish that he's a bit conflicted doesn't really land at all. There was a bit earlier in the scene with M when they talk about Uramov, where M is like, don't make this personal. Avenging Alec Trevelyan won't bring him back. And Bond's like, well, you didn't get him killed. And M says, look, neither did you. And you need to make sure that you are professional and don't make this a personal vendetta. So I get that finding that he was never dead and that he's in fact betrayed you would be, you know, a bit of a head F. Yeah. But I don't think this scene successfully conveys that. Yeah, I'm with you. It feels like a diversion from what we've been watching there is also then a different scene of them post coitus which is a little bit more lighthearted. in this scene she asks bond it's like so on the train when you told him that i meant nothing to you did did you mean it and he he sort of like snidely replies like oh absolutely always call their bluff yeah always call their bluff and then she starts to suffocate him with a pillow <laughs> playfully <laughs> yeah and then yeah, they yeah. make out some more yeah and then in the morning they're in a plane And so what are they doing in the plane? (laughs) They're looking for something. It would have to be some sort of satellite dish about the size of the dish at Severnaya if they want to be able to control the second Goldeneye. I don't know if we mentioned that, that Natalia also told Mishkin in the interrogation scene that there was a second Goldeneye. Man, you want to see a guy's face drop. Because he's like, why would Ormov do that? They, we, they, he destroyed the thing. And she's like, no, there's a second satellite. And he's like, uh-oh. <laughs> so they're looking for a dish about that size. And they cannot find one. They're flying around. They don't see anything. They do find an enormous lake, though. And in a scene very reminiscent of You Only Live Twice, <laughs> if they had just let them go... <laughs> they wouldn't have been found out in you only live twice they sent a bunch of helicopters after bond and this one they fire a rocket so this missile flies out of the water of the lake through the wing of the plane and the plane is forced to make an emergency crash landing yeah it's kind of a sucky rocket yeah (laughs) 
like you fire a rocket at a plane generally speaking you want the rocket to explode the plane <laughs> it just sort of goes through it and sets it on fire yeah it goes through the plane and sets the plane on fire so they crash land skip across the water the plane is a wreck they're in the jungle on the shore of the lake they both get sort of knocked out bond manages to pull them from the burning wreck but they're both knocked out he comes to as a helicopter is flying above them and Xenia gets out of the helicopter slides down a rope drop kicking bond on her way to the ground this is Xenia in her boss fight outfit from goldeneye 64 <laughs> she goes to crush bond with the thighs again with while standing yeah bond takes a bit of a beat i mean bond is at a disadvantage in this fight but this is another one of those good bond takes a beating fights yeah she's very in control through this whole fight until he grabs her gun and shoots the helicopter killing the pilot making the helicopter fall away she's still attached to the rope so she gets yanked way up into the crook of a tree and basically gets crushed to death by her harness. To which Bond quips, she always did love a good squeeze. Which is thematically appropriate, but not the best quip. No. Inside Trevelyan's amazing second Goldeneye facility, he's there with Boris and they're getting ready to fire the second Goldeneye. And so we get this amazing sequence of the lake that we just talked about and this massive structure rising out of the water of the lake and then the lake draining and leaving behind this absolutely enormous satellite dish. Now, this is a real place. It doesn't turn into a lake. <laughs> But the satellite <laughs> dish is a real thing. This is the Arecibo facility in Puerto Rico. Maybe they weren't in Puerto Rico in that scene with Wade. Maybe I was conflating it with where Arecibo actually is. But anyway, this is a real place. It's the Arecibo Observatory. It was used famously in this movie. It was also famously used in Contact with Jodie mm -hmm. Foster, which you should definitely check out also. Great movie. The goal of the Arecibo Observatory is to find extraterrestrial life. It's been there since 1974, I think. Uh, so far, nothing, but it, you never know. It's 2020. Anything could happen. I like the whole reveal of this observatory a lot, but now it's my turn. I mean, I'm sure you noticed, but it is now my time, turn to point this out to anyone who is uh, who is watching along at home. I bet I know exactly what you're talking about. Several of the shots of the observatory draining are actually shots of the observatory being filled with water running in reverse. I mean, I assume it's a model, not the actual observatory. Correct. Including the final shot of the water where the water just lifts, levitates off the surface of the dish into the air and then is sucked into the drain at the bottom of it. It is not entirely convincing. There are a few shots there that I think they might have benefited from trimming just a hair tighter. <laughs> I do appreciate that they tried to cover for that by having the shot where the water starts to lift in the air and then it cuts to a tighter shot on the water where it is actually falling to just sort of imply that like, oh, when the water gets down to the bottom, it sort of flies weird because of how the base of the dish is. Don't worry about it. Yeah, it's just all choppy like. Yeah, I, I like that they at least tried to cover for it, but it would have been better to maybe just like not use that shot. But yeah. Yeah. So many like, God, what a cool miniature though. So yeah, a bunch of these scenes are shot at actual Arecibo and also are miniatures. 
All right, so we we cut back inside and we start to get a sense of what the actual plan is as Trevelyan digs out the golden eye key, the gemstone that's used to activate it, and hands it to Boris, saying, The world's greatest cash card. Let's hope it's not rejected. He's very threatening when he says that. He is. And Boris is reassuring that, no, this will go to plan. Bond and Natalia get shot at and fall down and indeed slide, it sounds awful, the whole way down the dish <laughs> to the very base middle of the dish where there is a hatch where they can get inside the facility as Trevelyan and Boris arm the golden eye and lock in the target of London. And the antenna on the dish starts to realign to accommodate that. Mm -hmm. Bond and Natalia break into the facility. They actually split up, which was not their plan. Natalia just sort of takes off and Bond starts playing with some remote controlled mines. Yeah, little limpet mines. Remote mines from the video game. And then he surrenders himself and the camera pans over and we see that this mine is right beside a massive fuel tank that has been shot with bullet holes and is leaking a huge amount of fuel on the floor that no one's noticed because they're distracted by Bond. So I have a question. Yeah. We've talked extensively about how things that happen in this movie are often very well telegraphed and set up, then paid off later on. There is no exception in this scene. The presence of large vats of fuel and of liquid nitrogen are clearly visible in shots throughout this scene and through the remainder of the film. Yep. Why does this facility have giant vats full of fuel and liquid nitrogen? I don't know. <laughs> like, I'm glad they, they made it evident that they're there, but why? What purpose do they serve in this facility? That is an excellent question, and I'm not sure. I also love that some of the other staff in the facility just look like any random IT people. Like, there's multiple dudes wearing khakis and a black belt and a tucked-in polo shirt. <laughs> I mean, henchmen or us must have rentable IT guys. Yeah. Natalia gets into an ancillary computer lab and starts doing stuff on the computers. Bond gets led to Trevelyan, who sort of looks through his stuff, picks up the pen and sort of comments, oh, is Q up to his old tricks? And then remembers, he's like, wait, watch, give me your watch. <laughs> they take Bond's watch off and he compares it to his own and is like, oh, look at that new model. And notices that Bond's is blinking, goes, still press here, do I? Bloop. And then we get a shot of the remote mine turning off, which is great yeah so then bond looks at the computers and sees that what's happening is that they are hacking in to financial systems in london and stealing tons and tons and tons and tons of money and then that goldeneye is going to zap all the computers in london and bond tries to get under trevelyan skin being like oh so you're just gonna steal a bunch of money then destroy all the records very impressive but you're just any random bank robber you're just committing boring old larceny whoop-de-hoo yeah. Petty theft. Yeah. And Trevelyan says, you are thinking very small. It's not just bank records. It's all records. It's criminal records. It's laws. It's, you know, he, he wants to make the UK descend into anarchy as revenge. Yes. So he's stealing a bunch of money because, you know, you're in there anyway. Why not? But his intended goal is reduce society to rubble. So upon confirming this as his plan, Natalia, who has been caught at this point, is marched in back into the office to join Bond and Trevelyan. It is established that 
she has managed to interrupt the firing sequence of the GoldenEye satellite and has essentially locked Boris out of the computer like he had done to her previously. He gets real mad. He's not impressed at all. One thing that has been established about Boris is that he's always playing with a pen. We haven't talked about it until now, but in every scene that he's been in, he's always fiddling with a pen. (laughs) (laughs) And so Boris just idly grabs Bond's grenade pen and starts fiddling with it in his hand, spinning it and clicking it as he works to undo the hack that Natalia has initiated. And so Bond is standing there watching Boris work as everybody is standing there watching Boris work. But Bond is clearly counting the clicks. And there comes to a point where Boris looks like he's solved it and is about to unleash the GoldenEye satellite again. Bond takes that opportunity as he clicks the pen for the right number of times. And Bond basically like moves over and like slaps the pen out of his hand, causing the pen to explode (laughs) and creating a whole bunch of chaos. The scene is so tense because Trevelyan is threatening Natalia that he will kill Bond if she doesn't give him the codes. And Natalia is like, go ahead. He means nothing to me, which is funny. Yeah. It's just all these shots of like everyone's tense for different reasons. Like Natalia doesn't even know about the grenade pen. And so it's just like Bond being held at gunpoint. Trevelyan is worried about the rocket re-entering the atmosphere and Natalia is worried about everything. It's just the, the, the tension is immense and eventually it boils over and Trevelyan then threatens Natalia directly with the gun, allowing Bond the freedom to lunge at Boris and fling the pen over into the puddle of fuel that we've seen earlier. And then, yeah, then everything starts blowing up and going to hell. Yeah, fireballs everywhere. So then, of course, everybody starts running. Things are exploding. Bond and Natalia manage to make it into an elevator exiting the facility. Bond realizes that the GoldenEye is still going to go off at this point. He determines that they have to go destroy the transmitter itself to prevent the transmission of the firing code. Because he asks Natalia, can Boris break your codes? And she says, probably. And so he says, well, then we need to sabotage the antenna so that they can't control it. So... The elevator takes them up to the antenna, which is very convenient. <laughs> so they they plan a distraction for the guard. They have Natalia lie unconscious on the floor of the elevator. And the guard is like, oh, what's going on? And goes over and then Bond gets the drop on him and knocks him out, takes his gun and books it towards the center of the suspended antenna over the dish. While this is happening, Trevelyan has managed to make his way to a little like cable car apparatus. So they have a gunfight between each other from the antenna to the cable car back and forth as they're both sort of like heading into the center of the antenna. This is after Trevelyan left Boris at gunpoint to keep working on the codes, even though that's what boris was doing anyway the whole lab is on fire and boris is still sitting at a computer and then he's like okay cool random guard point your gun at this guy if he moves kill him and boris is like well okay like he was already doing it but anyway yeah it's like are you working as hard as you can yes sir mr trevelyan could you work any harder yes sir mr trevelyan So anyhow, Bond gets out to the little like shed in the middle of this apparatus, the mechanical shed, which has all the control mechanisms for how the antenna is aligned. Upon arriving there, he manages to get in and like 
throw a piece of metal or whatever into the works to prevent the antenna from turning. But as he's doing this, like as he's he's trying to figure out a way to stop the antenna from aligning, Trevelyan busts in, and so they end up in a in a fight. The the piece of metal does jam the antenna so that it can't align, which of course causes Boris some degree of frustration. Bond manages to sort of throw Trevelyan down a flight of stairs. They exchange some gunshots. Bond does apparently manage to hit Trevelyan because he is able to follow him by some blood spatter. They end up at the very bottom of this apparatus in like another little maintenance shed. This fist fight that they have here is brutal. Yeah, yeah. They like this is two double O's, both with the same training, both highly capable fighters. Trevelyan manages to get the drop on Bond in this case, so he gets the first few licks in and they just have at each other here. It is it is frankly a little rough to watch. It's a good good fight. Yeah. The fight ultimately comes to an end where sort of like up against the wall, Bond is leaning against this extensible ladder. He gets to the point where like he's pinned Trevelyan has a gun on him, and in order to avoid being killed, he hits the launch button on this ladder, which then drops out of the floor, like a hatch opens and it drops out of the floor and slides all the way down the length of this antenna apparatus, causing Bond to nearly fall to his death, but he manages to to sort of grab on and hold, realizing that about 10 feet below him, there's a little standing platform that he might be able to stand on, but he's not really well positioned to be able to get to it. Trevelyan descends the ladder behind him and stomps on his foot, causing him to drop, and he lands on this little platform. Oh, everything looks so painful. It all looks so painful and so dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> this is like the, the fight at the top of the Golden Gate Bridge in A View to a Kill. Like, there's one shot where Bond fully falls off the ladder and does a flip. <laughs> <laughs> he falls over backwards against the ladder and does a flip and just manages to grab back onto the ladder with one hand before falling to his death. And anyhow, on this little platform, they have another fight. <laughs> Somehow, this is like maybe a three foot by three foot platform, most of which is taken up by antenna. They have another fight. Bond finally manages to get the upper hand and he kicks Trevelyan back. Trevelyan falls over backwards and Bond leaps at him and manages to grab his boot just before Trevelyan falls to, to his death. Trevelyan looks up and says, for England, James? And Bond says, no, for me, and lets him go. <laughs> he falls and lands in a broken heap on the dish hundreds of feet below. Oh, it's so good. It's so good. I think that's actually the third for England exchange in the movie, like once in the pre-title and once that we didn't mention. But it's just, oh, gosh, it's so good. Yep. Yeah. Not only is that line really good, but the, the subsequent like intercuts as all of the plot lines resolve is also really good because Trevelyan falls and screams all his way down, right? And goes, oh, as he's falling. Somehow survives. He lands and his scream cuts as he lands and then it cuts over to Boris in a like front on shot from the point of view of the computer monitor that he's looking at as Boris is going ah! because he, of course the antenna has been malfunctioned and he can't align the golden ice or the, the Mishka satellite. So the satellite's burning up on re-entry. Yeah. And then it cuts to the satellite burning up on re-entry and it's just like this sweet little set of cuts as we see 
each of those like issues resolve back to back. Before Trevelyan dropped down the ladder, he called for the gunship to support him, which is like a helicopter. And Natalia was hiding in the jungle and we saw the helicopter take off, not necessarily realizing that what we were actually seeing was a POV shot from Natalia of watching the helicopter take off. So when the helicopter pulls up beside Bond and Trevelyan, Natalia pops out of the back seat and holds the pilot at gunpoint. So after Trevelyan falls, then Bond leaps from this little platform to the helicopter and they manage to get away before the antenna explodes and falls directly onto Trevelyan, crushing him finally. All right, so... Second question. Yeah. This antenna is an assemblage of corrugated metal and wire Mm -hmm. with a giant mechanical chain drive in the middle of it. Yeah. That explodes in an enormous fireball. (laughs) Uh, Any of the gasoline that they couldn't store in the computer lab, they must have had to throw up (laughs) on top of the satellite. Just we have all this gasoline and nowhere to keep it. I love it. But it's very silly. (laughs) Yes, it is profoundly silly, definitely. (laughs) Yeah. So anyhow, the antenna explodes in an enormous fireball and is, of course, knocked loose from its moorings. And so Trevelyan, who is lying still alive at the bottom of the dish in a broken heap, screams again as the antenna unmoors itself and plunges down on top of him, collapsing into a heap of now broken metal on top of this heap of broken man. We get a sort of like inverse version of the dish having originally collapsed over Natalia in Severnaya as the dish antenna apparatus bursts through the ceiling of the control facility that Boris is working in, smashes down, destroying everything except Boris who lives and delivers his catchphrase, which had been established previously in the movie, but we didn't really talk about of I am in the wind, only for the explosion to rupture the liquid nitrogen vats <laughs> that had been on the floor above him, causing this wave of liquid nitrogen to cascade over the floor and rain down upon him, freezing him solid into a human popsicle. Which is very silly, but also funny. It is funny. It's a good bit. They probably would have brought Boris back if he'd survived. Yeah, I could see them doing that. Boris feels like the kind of henchman you'd bring back. Yeah, but yeah, this was his third or fourth. I mean, invincible. There's another thing I love here. So the gunship flies Bond, who's been hanging from one of the railings on the bottom of the helicopter since jumping off the antenna. So it brings him back to land. He drops to the ground. Natalia jumps out of the helicopter and then the helicopter just flies away. I want to know where that helicopter's going. Yeah. It's flown by a henchman. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Who I guess is like, guess I don't have a job now. Later. I hated my boss anyway. I I wondered that myself. I was like, yeah, that helicopter's just flying away on its own. Oh, wait, no, there was a guy in there. Wait, where's he going? (laughs) So anyhow... Natalia jumps down after Bond. They land in a grass field. Natalia's lying on top of Bond. Bond is wincing in pain. Then they start to make out and they smooch a whole bunch. Natalia is like, before we get it on here, which we're definitely going to do, she's like, well, what if somebody's watching? And Bond says, oh, there's nobody around for miles. (laughs) And then you hear, yo, Jimbo. (laughs) As Wade walks up behind them, he's like, hey, buddy, good job. And then Bond's like, what are you doing here? To which he responds, oh, tobacco plants. Hmm? What was that? What were you saying? (laughs) 
He's consistent. Yeah. And, you know, his response is, I said I'd be here, didn't I? And then he turns around and goes, Marines. And the entire field that Bond and Natalia were lying in, which is covered in dead grass, stands up. (laughs) As, like, 40 Marines... (laughs) all make their presence known the very very silly part of this shot is that also (laughs) three helicopters descend into shot from the top of frame but you didn't hear the engines until they were in shot (laughs) so it's like where were they (laughs) they just appear as if from nowhere (laughs) and bond's like great timing would have been nice to have you a few minutes earlier so Wade is like, well, would you like to finish this back at Guantanamo? We'll give you a lift. This was 1995. Guantanamo Bay was <laughs> a little less controversial. Well, I mean, yeah. it was it had a different it didn't have as much baggage. Yes. And Bond picks up Natalia and they they head to the helicopter. As I believe in this scene, Natalia jokes about the fact that she's not getting on any vehicle with Bond ever again. Yes, because they keep exploding. Yeah, it's like, I am not getting on a helicopter with you, nor a plane, nor a train, nor a car. And then he says, oh, yes, you are, and picks her up and they get onto a helicopter. The helicopters fly away and the world's mellowest end title credit song starts to play. I I don't like the end title song. (laughs) No. It's very bad. It's by Eric Serra, who did the music for the movie. So all the music that I really, really like from the movie was also by this person. But this piece of music and the music in that car chase at the beginning <laughs> were also by this person. So he's, he, he's it's a wash. He's hit and miss. Yeah. Yeah. As has been noted repeatedly, I tend to watch these quite late at night because I usually start watching them around 10 o'clock. And some of these Bond movies are quite long. Having a movie end on a sleeper like that at 1.30 in the morning is rough <laughs> but hey at least the rest of the movie before that point was a total banger yeah man like ugh, everyone's getting different things from movies this is very obvious to us when we look at the episode on octopussy just went up earlier this week that we're recording mm-hmm. there are people for whom that movie is among their favorites which is fine you're allowed we're you our opinions don't negate your opinions you don't need to get mad at us for disagreeing with your thoughts on a movie but you know there there's things that people are listing as reasons that they like that movie that we were sort of like well it's not really what i'm into the movie for but all right cool but i've talked about you know when we were looking at never seen ever again and i was talking about how how badly assembled it was mm-hmm. right this movie is so tight yeah it is so well put together and we talked a lot about how things are set up and paid off and how well it's paced and shot and edited. And with the one exception of that beach scene that I'm just like, I don't actually think this helps what the movie is trying to do. This movie is just so, so good. Mm-hmm. I, I find it difficult to disagree. This movie is great. <laughs> this movie is firing on all cylinders, basically, for its entire runtime. You're absolutely right that it's it's near flawlessly pieced together. I don't think any of the criticisms I have of it actually damage my opinion of the film in any way. Yeah, yeah. I, I think this movie is rad as hell. Yeah, they absolutely nailed this. And I mean, by all accounts, they felt like they needed to, you know, like it had been yeah. so long and it was just sort of like, is Bond still viable in the mid 90s? There's no Cold War. You know, can we still do this? And by heck, did they? Yeah. Everyone in it is so good. Largely, the music is very good. (laughs) Just it's just terrific. 
let's yeah let's let's rank it <laughs> yeah let's rank it let's rank pieces of it all right pre-title all right as we mentioned at the beginning of the episode well not the beginning you know like 20 minutes into the episode the <laughs> pre-title is it's not just a great little self-contained thing it also sets up stuff for the movie now it doesn't necessarily give you like a hook like some movies had because you don't know that's relevant until later so it's not like you're going, oh, I wonder what they're going to do with that. It has the feeling of a self-contained mission. But like the stunts are cool. It's fun. God, it's really good. I straight up think it's an all-time great. I, I don't know because I don't remember everything that's yet to come if it will stay where I'm about to put it. But I think I'm fully putting this in this one in number one. Above from Russia with love. Oh, I think so. This this one has everything I liked about License to Kill mm -hmm. and then more. <laughs> yeah. Like this, this one is just it slaps. <laughs> it's so good. It's just great stunt after great stunt, great character interactions, a good reveal for Bond without being too hammy about it. Good like world building in terms of, as you mentioned, the sort of establishment of how the double O's interact with one another. The setups without being overly hooky for the movie is really good like it has its own little arc like it's its own little mini adventure it absolutely rules i i have no criticisms i could possibly make about the opening to this movie i think it is easily the best one so far to paraphrase something you just said a moment ago i am having difficulty disagreeing with any part of that <laughs> I'm really thinking about it. And no, it's gosh, you're right. Everything about it is really solid. I have to unseat from Russia with Love at this point because that opening scene is awesome. It's great. It's the first one and it set the standard for everything that followed. But I have to unseat from Russia with Love at this point. I, I think this one is, I mean, this is my own biases talking, right? As this being as much what I would describe as my Bond movie as any other. But this is the bar by which I would measure <laughs> any subsequent pre-title scene mm -hmm. i mean this whole this whole exercise is our biases and our subjective opinions of these bond films and i completely agree i'm also putting this pre-title at the top sweet how about the song gosh it's really good it's really really good i'm honestly not gonna put it at the top neither am i <laughs> but it's up there it's very good i think without beating around it too much i i think i'm putting this one at number four i think i am going live and let die goldfinger view to a kill this ohmss okay i am having a slightly harder time pinning it although i laughed when you said number four because that was the <laughs> placement that i was considering at the moment that you said it <laughs> lyrically it's unrelated to the movie but it's it's <laughs> such a belter and it's so good yeah that i i'm, I'm just like yeah right sure yeah i like i'm looking at my list and my top five starting at five is man with the golden gun well this is better than man with the golden gun no question <laughs> ohmss i really really like it it's that song's sweet view to a kill maybe i like this better than view to a kill but then maybe i like this better than live and let die i don't think it's better than goldfinger because i think it's aping goldfinger <laughs> <laughs> I think it's trying to be Goldfinger, so I I don't think it, it succeeds at being better than. But nah, heck it. I'm going to do what you did. I'm putting it at four. Yes, join me. I also consider the opening to Goldeneye to be one of the all-time greats. Mm -hmm. What about Goldeneye, the movie? Oh, it's going to be high. 
Yeah, I can tell you it's going to be very high for me as well. GoldenEye has always been high on my list. Like it has always been one of my favorite Bond films. And yeah. every time I've gone back and watched it, I've been like, oh yeah, no, yeah, this is one of my favorites for a reason. And then watching it now, I was like, all right, let's go into this open mind. Let's really examine this. You know, let me let me confront my own biases here, even though this is subjective, even though this is a list of just our own biases. You know, let me really make sure you know, has this movie earned that? Right. And yeah, it has. Yeah. Thus far on this list, this is my favorite Bond film. Nice. That's quite impressive. It's not going quite as high for me, but it is going in the top three. I didn't figure it would be your number one, but it is for me. It's just every part of it is so good. My placement for it is going to be at in the number three slot. This one goes ahead of The Spy Who Loved Me, which like truly I could not justifiably place this below The Spy Who Loved Me. There's there's no possible way that I could argue that in good faith. <laughs> but I think this goes at number three. I adore From Russia With Love and I think for its faults, OHMSS is a fantastic movie and goldeneye is just rad beginning to end yeah again we've we've covered this a few times now but like the degrees of difference between slot one and slot three here are microscopic oh yeah it's like you're barely barely adjusting the knobs it's just like uh, yeah but i think i think this goes at number three for me and so i wanted to briefly before we wrap up i wanted to talk about something you said right at the very beginning which is that i do feel that bond actually has an arc in this movie in how he handles well when you see him in the mission in the pre-title when he is like maximum goofing when he's like doing all these quips with 006 back and forth and then from there to this embittered guy about Oromov that M is telling him to you know you got to make sure to be to keep this professional to then at the end where he's like I'm going to kill this man and lets Trevelyan fall I think there's more than nothing there mm, yeah I mean there's emotion at an arc <laughs> <laughs> I do agree that it's still really hard to sort of place who this bond is. There's lip service paid to an arc here. Uh, like I, I am saying this in the context of having now rated this as my third favorite bond movie of the movies we've watched so far. The problem with this movie in my estimation is that the emotional beats around bond don't deliver mm. around bond himself. Mm -hmm. The movie surrounding him is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> but Bond is sort of maximum quip at the beginning. You're right. I never feel like there's a cynical Bond that appears. People talk to him like that's what's happening, but that's not the character that's on screen. There's like this ostensible character change where he's willing to let go and willing to be responsible for the death of Alec after he's been betrayed and, and whatever. But as with the, the scene on the beach, there's an attempt at like delivering this character development and growth, but Bond has not exhibited any of the symptoms of needing that character intervention at that point and so it falls completely flat <laughs> oh, i definitely agree about that scene yeah the the arc that is there it is all people talking to bond as if there is meant to be an arc there and bond just always does the things that bond is gonna do what i would have needed is a better delivery earlier in the film on the idea that bond is racked with guilt for letting Trevelyan die and for instance and this is something I would expect they would deliver on in a more modern Bond movie in fact is the in fact they might over deliver on it given the the nature of our more modern Bond movies but there needed to be even if they had just tied it up in like the nine years later segment where he is being 
reevaluated if they had given some indication that he was being reevaluated because he was carrying trauma from that mission or in the years between that mission and now he's been unable to perform his duties to the level expected or anything in there to indicate that he's actually carrying baggage that he needs to work through that is that goes beyond people telling him you're carrying baggage that you need to work through because it never comes through in his character that's fair those are those are really good suggestions i i definitely would have liked to have seen that as well now that you now that you mention it all right fair enough yeah that's that's my only like sort of argument in that in that space is like bond still feels really static in this to me and while there's lip service paid to an arc the arc doesn't actually manifest well it's not going to get better as we go forward in brosnan's movies unfortunately (laughs) i think brosnan's bond gets a little better drawn as we spend more time with him unfortunately i don't think the movies ever get this good no (laughs) (laughs) but i guess we'll find out next time when we look at 1997's tomorrow never dies And until then, because that is going to do it for this episode of From Rewatch with Love, I want to thank always Matt Wiggins for joining me. Thank you for having me. I want to thank Featherweight for the art. I want to thank Matt Griffiths for the work he does on the video version of the podcast. If you are only listening audio only, I thank you. But check out the video version sometime too, because it's very entertaining. And of course, I want to thank Heather for doing podcast admin and all of you and your kind support of our Patreon at patreon.com slash loading ready run. And most importantly, just for being here and listening and engaging and watching and telling us what you think. We really do appreciate it. That's going to do it for Goldeneye. Until next time, this podcast will return. Mm-hmm.